Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the pod the pad. The pod taste. The pod taste. (laughs) What a delicious taste of pod. I'm leaving that in. The podcast where (laughs) good taste and bad taste collide. And (laughs) And taste. (laughs) My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN. People call me Hey You. People just call me on the phone these days because actually, it's the safe thing to do. People actually are using their telephone to speak to people. Isn't that nice? Remember when that was considered passe a month ago? I, uh, You know what? I always did it, and now my friends don't think I'm so weird anymore. Yeah, human content. Mm-hmm. funny how that one works. <laughs> um, anyway, welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, where we review new movies and have our critically acclaimed streaming club. Uh, we have a bunch of stuff to catch up on this week. Sorry, this episode's a couple of days late. It's been a hectic time. Uh, but we're reviewing the new releases Coffee and Kareem, Slay the Dragon, The Other Lamb, Puka Lives, and Invisible Life. And on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Network, we're reviewing the Akira Kurosawa kidnapping classic High and Low. Uh, we uh, sent out a poll f- uh, for films that were on the Criterion channel. Yes, that one chose... or both of us hadn't seen. Yeah, and uh, uh, as it turns out, I have seen High and Low. I'm a big Kurosawa fan, mm-hmm. but you haven't, so I'm eager to see what yeah. you thought. I'm a fan too, but he was very prolific, and they're just mm. some big stuff that I missed. So I'm mm-hmm. really, really was really excited to catch up to it. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about that on the back half of the show. Um, but yeah, let's just jump in because we oh, got yeah, a lot sure. of movies to review. And again, this episode's a couple of days late and I feel really bad about uh, that. Yeah, so the, the you, scene... you need to know how coffee and Kareem is. <laughs> well, you know, everybody, everybody's at home, uh, staying safe. So there's a lot of options to watch new movies on streaming services. Coffee and Kareem, I think was one of the number one films this weekend. Kind of. In, in terms of like Netflix popularity. Technically. Because Netflix has been very, very uh, protective of their actual like numbers and ratings, we don't know what exactly that means being number one no, on they Netflix. Just, they just throw a number at yeah. it. Oh, this is number four. Great. How do we know? <laughs> because we told you. Ah, does, that, well. does that translate to more money for you? Like, who, yeah, I'm not did, exactly sure. Did the people who made the movie get like? Did you get new more royalties uh, for that? Like, did you get new does... signups from people who just wanted to see Coffee and Kareem? Everyone loves Coffee and Kareem. Yeah. Um, I uh, I can talk about the first 20 minutes of Coffee and Curry. I tried to watch it, and I just uh-huh. simply did not have time to get through it. I'll, I'll say this. The P in Taraji P. Henson stands for amazing. <laughs> because Taraji P. Henson is amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go one further. Uh, I'm going to go one further. Uh, the Gilpin in mm. Betty Gilpin stands for Gilpin Amazing <laughs> Because yeah, she's um, also in this movie, not that you would know from any of the promotional materials, and she is... Fucking hilarious in this mm. film. Uh, I did see a scene early on where she and the main character is played by uh, Ed Helms. That box office draw. Uh, I make fun of Ed Helms. He's fine. He, he um, can take it. He's <laughs> uh, he's he being dressed down for screwing something up, and she was the one who uh, she and she both caught. Cops. They're both cops. She plays a cop. He plays a cop, and uh, she caught a high profile criminal because she's a very good cop. And uh, it was his job to transfer the prisoner, and he lost the prisoner. This is the opening act. And he did so, like, in public. There's online video. It's gone viral. Mm -hmm. He looks like a moron. The department looks like a bunch of idiots. So, yeah. uh, David Allen Greer, who plays the chief. What a perfect casting that is. Yep. And an Uh, awesome beard, by the way. It's a good look for him. Big, long, white beard he's wearing in this movie. Gives them a dressing down. And Betty Gilpin is, like, Don Rickles insult comic level in that scene. Oh, yeah. 
Like she just is is really able to stick it to Ed Helms, and Ed Helms, who's really good at playing kind of sad sacks, like pathetic kind of characters, yep. uh, just sort of sits there and withers in his chair, and it's actually quite a good scene. It's okay. However, I can't go too much further beyond this, so please extrapolate. Okay. So Coffee and Kareem is the new comedy from director Michael Dows. Uh, he recently put out the um, the movie Stuber. Which oh, okay. I believe uh, was about a stupid Uber. Um, I think so. I didn't see it. I didn't see stupid. Uh, he also did. Uh, he also did the actually pretty good romantic comedy. What if uh, he did the really good sports comedy Goon? Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Goon rocks. Um, but his movies, his career is a lot of TV, a lot of hit and misses. Um, Coffee and Kareem stars Ed Helms as Officer Coffee. Uh, who is dating Taraji P. Henson, much to the chagrin of her teenage son, Kareem, mm, who likes good. to think he's a tough guy, but actually he's just, well, he, a, he's just a kid. He's actually 12. Is he 12? Yeah, he looks pretty old for 12. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he's, he's tall. Yeah. And you know, he wears like big jackets and like kind of throws himself around a lot. He's got a big, I thought he was big just ostentatious te- hairdo. But. I thought he was just a teenager who actually looks like a teenager as opposed to in movies when teenagers look like they're 26. Because they're played by 26-year-olds. Yeah, I thought for once we actually had a teenager who looked like a guy who's like 16. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be a pleasant it's change It's so rare when that happens. It's not really important what grade he's in. In any case, he hates this guy. Mm. And what's more, the idea that his mom is dating a white guy dating a cop and he doesn't have money it's like there's nothing in this for him so he hates this guy to pieces and so what he decides to do is when ed helms accidentally lets uh this drug kingpin um flee the scene in his own squad car and he's been humiliated uh kareem happens to know some people and he knows where the guy's hanging out and he's going to go to that guy. He's going to have Ed Helms drive him there after school. Ed Helms, being a doof, doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Drives him to the guy's hideout and then goes into the hideout and says, Hey, I got a sock full of money. Would you kill my mom's boyfriend? <laughs> and unfortunately, he while he's in the middle of this, uh, he accidentally he was like putting this on video because he's a moron. And uh, he catches this like these bad guys killing a corrupt cop. Oh great! So okay. now he and Coffee like flee the scene, and uh, Coffee is framed for the murder because they're corrupt yeah. cops and he doesn't know who did it. Uh, and these two people who hate each other mm-hmm. uh, are now their only like hope to survive and stuff. It's a pretty standard formula. It's a mismatched yeah, it buddy story. It's Midnight Run. Mm-hmm. It's cop and, and a half. Cop and mm-hmm. a, cop and a half is basically the template for yeah. this. Um, uh, and of course, forty-eight hours, a ton of stuff. Mm. So basically, two people who don't like each other have to do cop stuff. There are moments when that's fine, and I will tell you, <laughs> I will tell you all of the moments in as quick of fashion as I possibly can. If Taraji P Henson or Betty Gilpin are in the scene. It's great. Because <laughs> they're great. Because they're really great. Even yeah. though Taraji P. Henson doesn't have much of a character, she ends up like not being the damsel in distress, much to the uh, uh, shock and surprise of the various drag runners who try to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part's cool. Uh, but other than that, she's basically, you know, a tough mom. Good yeah. mom. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I buy her, but like, you know. Uh, and Betty Gilpin gradually over the course of the movie 
she, she, she starts off. I'm not going to tell you the plot, but I'll say this right yeah. now from a from a comedy standpoint in terms of like how broad a performance Betty Gilpin is giving. Like at the beginning of the movie, she's at like a seven. Okay, she's very funny. She's very overtly funny. She's in a broad comedy. By the end of the movie, she's at a twelve, <laughs> and she is amazing. <laughs> she's really, really, really funny. Car chases, shootouts. Like there's this part where she actually like. The, the stress of the day and all of this horrible shit that has gone down. It's just like, listen, I just want to go home and watch a Nancy Myers movie and erase this whole day. <laughs> and I buy it because uh, I've been watching Coffee and Kareem. And I would also like to erase this movie. Oh this gosh. movie is mostly not funny. Again, it focuses on the two least funny characters. Ed Helms, who ostensibly should be the lead, but because he's such a pushover... He's barely registering half the time. Uh, this kid who plays Kareem, and I'm going to need to look his name up, actually, because I do not recognize him. Uh, he's... Uh, Terrence Little Garden High. Oh, I don't know Terrence Little Garden High. I'm unfamiliar with him as well. Mm. Uh, I guess uh, he does TV. He's on a show called Danger Force. Uh, okay. He was on a show called Henry Danger. Perhaps those two things are related. I do not know. Uh, actually, doesn't have a lot of credits on IMDb. I don't feel super guilty about this. Okay. Um, he's got a lot of presence, but a lot of his performance, you know, the script requires him to be intensely unlikable. Yeah. Just yeah. mean, bullying, homophobic, uh, uh, threatening to say that Ed Helms has tried to do unspeakable things to him in order to get what he wants. Um, and he tries to put a hit out on him. Yeah, that's like, to begin with. Like at first, I'm like, "How broad are we going here?" Actually, not that broad in some respects. It's not like the Monty Python kind of thing where that could be funny. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's actually just this kid's fucked up. Like he legit tried, um, and like he downgrades it eventually. Just beat him up, mm -hmm. but like still, he went there. He yeah. went, and he's like, he's outside now. You can just go get him. Like this was not an academic exercise that got taken too mm -hmm. far. He tried. There's a thing in this movie that I feel sums up this movie a lot. Because this movie tries to mine um, issues of you know race, mm -hmm. uh, corrupt cops. Yeah, police violence. Police violence, uh, sexual violence sometimes, uh, into humor. And for me, the, the most telling scene in this movie, there is a scene where I, I don't know how they thought this was going to work they tried to have pro progressive gay panic okay how does that work okay so, so gay, gay, gay panic is when a character is presumed to be gay and they freak out or they yeah. they're or they freak to... out at the at the thought of potential gayness coming into their proximity yeah like mm -hmm. gay equals scary that's mm -hmm. gay panic yeah a straight person is panicking because yeah. they're near a gay person and 99 percent of the time mm -hmm. it's just plain offensive like yeah. i can't there, there may be an example i'm thinking of the producers Really over the top gay caricatures. The main character, one of the main characters, is a little uncomfortable, uh -huh. but the other character is totally at ease with this. And even though they're broad caricatures, they're not the brunt of any kind of joke. Okay, I haven't revisited that one in a okay. while, but okay, maybe. Yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm not saying it can't be done. I, I the think, discomfort around a different mm. culture can be funny, but usually, when it becomes gay panic. Mm. It becomes basically this gross. thing that it's it becomes gross. Gross. and it's just not funny. Mm. I don't think that's in good taste. I'm not going to laugh at that. Ed Helms is told that he's not threatening enough. 
Mm-hmm. He's told by Kareem. Yeah. Kareem tells him, you need to be more threatening. No one is intimidated by you when you talk. Mm-hmm. And Ed Helms is like, well, what, what should I do? And Kareem, and again, who's in middle school, says, uh, you got to throw in more gay stuff. To, Just to like, threaten people? Yeah, to threaten people with gay stuff. Or that's what makes people uncomfortable. I guess he's talking about, like, bad guys. Well, if, if he was specifically going into a place where, like, Kareem had, like, this guy's really macho, and if you uh, read as gay to him, you're going to throw him off a little bit. Like, if, if that were sort of no, the strategy... No, he's then... not talking about read as gay. Oh, he's right. talking about threaten, threatening like, sexual, sexual assault or uh, that on, kind of thing, or, or okay. accusations of homosexuality, and oh, that God. will make people uncomfortable. And he's not talking about a specific situation, he's saying in general. So, so A, it, that sucks. That, that wouldn't have been funny in a Police Academy movie. But here's the thing. Ed Helms tries it a couple of times and he's really bad at it. Mm. And then finally, when they've got a guy tied up and they're trying to get information out of him, Ed Helms decides he's going to make this his own. Mm. And he starts yelling at him about how they're going to date politely and he's going to respect his boundaries and eventually he'll have sex with him in exactly the way he wants him to have sex with them and he'll meet your parents and their parents are going to love me and the guy's like ah and I'm like okay I see what you mean by progressive gay you see what I mean like they were trying something here Mm, it mm, falls really flat because the because the tone is still uh, yeah is still gay is threatening gay is threatening gay is bad and there's a moment towards the end that's almost kind of makes it work where the because like it, all, it, it culminates with Enhelm saying, and then one day I will get down on one knee and I will present you a ring and ask, "Will you be my husband?" And the one part of this that almost makes this bit almost funny, hmm. but it's not because the whole tone is too panicky, is when the guy gets thrown off his game and he's just like, "I don't know, eight months seems like a short amount of time." Like for a second, <laughs> he's just focusing on the nuts and bolts of it. But the general so, idea gen- is gentle... this movie wants to do all the racist jokes, all the yeah. gay jokes, mm. but it wants to get away with them now. Yeah, and I don't think you can. That that's that's a, a cut and paste job. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, you could say that. I'm not going to defend this movie. I haven't seen it, but um, yeah, I know. You could perhaps defend that saying that the the gangsters who are supposed to be like really sort of tough and hard are, are afraid of like tender domesticity. Uh, and that might have read if it were perhaps a, a female cop, and it was a straight gangster. I guess maybe I'm not, I'm not really convinced. Or, or, or if both the characters were gay going in, it was a, you know, if they were queer characters, that would be a different. Yeah, matter. because then but, it's about like what kind of relationship exactly. Like I exactly. guess you could have done something like that. Uh, but yeah, this is like um, I've, I've cited this example before. I was watching a children's cartoon uh, in like the early two thousands. And one of the lines of dialogue was, "You somebody was repeating themselves over and over again, and a friend said, you sound like a broken MP3. As in, they were sk- right. skipping like a broken record. Now, you clearly, whoever wrote that is some old old dude who is just saying, they you, were being you sound like you're a broken record, because that's just sort of parlance for the person who was writing it. Yeah. But then they probably realized at the last minute, wait a minute, a kid might, in the early 2000s, might not know what a record is. What do kids listen to? They listen to MP3. So he just erased the word record and put an MP3, even though that phrase, you sound like a broken MP3, is completely meaningless. It could have gone the other way as well. It could have been a line that they'd given to an adult, someone who's just playing with the language, and it's funny because mm. we both know what I mean. But then you give that line to a kid and it loses all context. Yeah, maybe so. But it just doesn't read. Oh, uh, yeah. The characters were both kids. So yeah, that sounds like they were they wrote straightforward. 1984 era police academy kind of joke. Yeah. 
And then they realized, wait a minute, that's not going to read in 2020. So let's just replace the dialogue in the scene, not the scenario, not the joke, just the dialogue with something that sounds a little bit more progressive. And that's true for just about everything in this movie. That's true for all the talk about race relations. That's true for every like, uh, uh, what's the word? Like cliche scene that they run into. There's a scene where they have to go to a strip club because Mm. of course it is. This is built on the, the, the decaying bones of another 48 hours. Like (laughs) not even the good one. I feel like this is the kind of movie that is nostalgic for a time when movies that couldn't get made today and Mm -hmm. maybe shouldn't get made today just because the humor and the social context is really outdated, Mm -hmm. uh, assuming it was ever funny at all. Um, They're nostalgic for that and they want to try to find a clever way to do it again and get away with it. This is not that way. The, The main plot is terrible. The kid's okay, but his character is completely brash and just unpleasant to be around. Ed Helms is... His... His, like, doormat persona can be funny in a group dynamic. When he's the lead, he needs to actually lead something. And Mm. he's just disappearing in this movie and not in a Mm. good way. So every time a person with... Power with a character who actually makes sense and is giving a kind of performance that actually works today shows up, specifically Betty Gilpin and Roger B. Henson. All of a sudden, the movie flowers. The movie is just like, oh, hi! <laughs> Somebody who's actually funny. Comedy. Remember Comedy. when things yeah. were funny and actually like made like emotional sense and like actually things mattered? Hmm. Yeah! Okay, now we're going to give you another 30 minutes of Ed Helms yelling at a kid. And then, uh, and vice versa. And then we're going to get back to Betty Kilpin. Isn't that much better? I'm like, yeah, it is, movie. Why the fuck weren't they the stars? It's always weird when you see a movie where it's so, like, trapped in the past, but there's, like, one character or one, like, supporting or subplot or something that gives you a hint at what could have been. You know, mm. so like, it's it's still better than that Shaft movie, right? The new Shaft, yeah, okay. yeah, it's way better than the new Shaft. Not uh, nearly as good as any of the other Shafts, <laughs> because the other, because at least the, this the is, new... there's good stuff in this mm-hmm. one. Like there's the people who are struggling in the new Shaft and trying to do something with it, but every single scene in that new Shaft is mm. just wrongheaded. Yeah. Here, occasionally, there's a funny scene. Okay. There's a bit that just works, but it has almost it almost never has anything to do with coffee or cream. So it's really frustrating. And yeah. I, I honestly I don't recommend it. It's better than some of the other like broad Netflixy movies, the the Adam Sandlery type oh, stuff yeah. they put out once in a while. Like I'd rather watch this again barf. than watch the ridiculous six. Barf, 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 or uh, whatever barf, the hell barf, that barf. one he did with uh, the do over. The do over. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, like I'd rather watch this again than that, but mm. that's not saying a lot. And even so, it's only because of Tragic Hanson and uh, Betty Gilpin. So right. uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't finish it then. I don't feel bad. I only wasted about you. twenty minutes of my life. I didn't see the remaining hour. I, I, I love you so much as a friend <laughs> that I don't wish that for you. <laughs> it's okay that and you didn't have to like sit through that one. I, I took that bullet. Thank you for all of us. And now you know how coffee and Kareem was. Uh, let's move on. What do you want to talk about next? Let's talk about the other lamb. Okay, that's a big shift. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, I like The Other Lamb. The Other Lamb is quite good. It is a mm. new horror movie uh, of sorts. 
It, it, it's, it it's in that A twenty four art house horror where yeah, things are horrifying, but is it truly like shocking? They, like there's, Maybe there's some blood, there's some violence, but yeah, and it's it's more about just sort of people living in a desperate situation, mm. surrounded by dread. It uh, reminds me of that movie Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is they're both mm. about cults. They're both about cults in which uh, men use their power to abuse women and what it is like to be uh, indoctrinated into mm. that cult. Uh, Martha Marcy and Marlene is a really fantastic film and it is really full of dread and I'm also like if you want to call it a horror movie I guess you could but it's hmm. a clearly like riding the yeah, edge of yeah. genre so it doesn't really fit tightly into I, one thing. I'm comfortable calling this one horror because yeah, just all of right. the iconography is horrific uh, there's like gnarled trees and abandoned houses and slaughtered lambs and uh, menstrual blood is a big part of this movie um, it this is directed by a, a Polish director. Her name is uh, Maglozata Zumowska. And uh, she... I've not seen any of her previous films, and I think I'd like to after this, because mm-hmm. this one is awesome. Uh, th- this hits all my sweet spots. There's a lot of just sort of wandering through the mud in the wilderness, feeling afraid of the world, and a lot of de- de- death seeping up from the ground. Uh, that's my jam. <laughs> it's a film that came out last year called Hagazusa, Heathen's Curse, which was very much like this, and I'll, I'll shut up about that one now. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Raffi Cass- Cassidy? Raffi Cassidy. Raffi Cassidy from, like, from I Vox I saw from Tomorrowland. Okay, I, I saw her in Vox Locks. Oh, was she, she in that? I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, yeah, she played the... The girl who grew up into be grew up to be uh, Natalie Portman and also, oh, okay. and also Natalie Portman's daughter, so she had two roles. Oh, in interesting. Movie. Okay, uh, but yeah, she plays a young woman. She's um, older teenager. She's about seventeen, mm-hmm. and she lives with a cult. Uh, there's a, a charismatic, handsome, bearded fellow who gives a lot of these very Christian-like lectures, mm-hmm. and lives with his essentially his harem. And he's yeah. divided the women he lives with into sisters and wives. And uh, when you get to sleep with the boss, that's considered like a big promotion. Yeah, you're and, a wife now. Yeah, and, and the sisters are mostly either young people or his own daughters. Mm. And there's a general awareness that eventually all sisters become wives. Mm. So Holy he's, shit. He's, he's probably sleeping with his own daughters. It's not made yeah. explicit, but it's... It's pretty clear. Um, And for a long time, uh, very much like in uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, you're not really sure what era we're supposed to be in. It's revealed pretty early on, though. Like the first ten minutes or so. That that this is the modern world. Yeah, Uh, and these people live in this weird, way off to the side Amish community. Yeah, they're living in the forest. They are, like, tending sheep. Mm. Um, and they have no, there's no technology, not even like mm. modern rakes and the, stuff. The only thing that, that gives it away is that they live in a camper. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the only thing. And, that, and then, it takes them a while to even show us that. And there's a, a scene later on where we get to see the Raffi Cassidy mm. character kind of, I'm not sure if she was dreaming or flashing back to the life she lived before she was part of this cult. No, she was she's dreaming like, because she was born into this cult. Okay. Yeah. She's sort of like having this weird reverie about like driving around in cars. Yeah. Would it have been possible yeah. to be normal? Uh, and she's, uh, unbelievably distressed because, uh, she, I mean, there's no polite way to say it. She hasn't had her first period yet. And that makes her valueless to the shepherd, who is the, the name of the cult leader. Mm. And uh, it, he's played by, uh, and I, I'm going to, I don't pronounce this, uh, mm. Michelle Huisman. We, okay. Yeah. Or Michael Huisman. I apologize. Okay. I'm pronouncing that wrong. I believe he was on Game of Thrones. Okay. But uh yeah, he's he's a good-looking guy. 
He looks he's... he looks like handsome Jesus. Like that's oh, yeah, that's yeah. clearly the vibe they're going for. The long hair, bit of a beard, kind of kind of rakish, mm. you know. I always hear about how uh, cult leaders are very charismatic and people sort of fall in under their wing. And I've seen footage of like cult leaders, like real cult leaders, and I see no charisma whatsoever. I see like charisma sinkholes. Right. Which. Well, I feel I, the I guess, same way about Donald Trump. Yeah, like he, his confidence is all he has. Yeah, exactly. Con- confident in his complete ignorance. That's, so that's what's what's alluring to people. Yeah, is that, people people are attracted to confidence. Yeah. They are. So he's, he's he doesn't know anything, but he's confident about it. And. Yeah. Um, I don't get any charm from this guy. He's clearly laid down all the rules so long ago that he doesn't need to win over his flock any longer. He doesn't need to enforce them. He doesn't need to convince anybody of anything. They all accept it. In fact, the only thing he's really interested in doing anymore is sexually dominating these women. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in in a recurring motif... He like sticks his hand in their mouths, Ugh. which is really like this weird kind of sexual dominance thing. Like it sticks a few fingers in their mouth and like sexually in a sexual type scenario, which just makes you feel really dirty. Well, yeah, uh, it, yeah it's invasive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, we all know that feeling. It is mm. unpleasant. Yeah. And it's a sort of thing that people shouldn't just get to do to you. Yeah. And, and of course, all of the uh, I hate to say expected dramas, but, you know, dramas do arise between the women. Some people are favored and some aren't. They resent. It. Some people are starting to say, wait a minute, this isn't, this life isn't good. Yeah. We, we can't live in this cult anymore. We understand that bad things are happening. Of course, death eventually becomes wrapped up in all of this. Yeah. Um, there's a really excellent sense of isolation yeah, in this. Even yeah. though there's like, a, there's at one point where someone does pop in from the everyday world. Mm-hmm. Uh the vast majority of this film takes place in complete isolation from that world. Mm. And uh, there's this really horrifying, uh, a line that I think is being drawn here between, uh, you know, it was in a man's best interest. He thought Mm -hmm. to dominate women. Yeah. To have as many women as he could to use whatever means of coercion. Religion is a really great way to do that. To assert a patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And yet to this degree, this just openness about it is not acceptable in modern society. So yeah. they have he has to be off the grid. But you then also just see the regular old parallels between mm. what this guy's doing and what we see every day yeah, as women are marginalized um, and taken for granted and abused. Yeah. And, and that this movie comes from such a place of, I think, simmering anger. Yeah. yeah um, and we're just waiting for Rafi Cassidy in particular, mm. hopefully, we hope, to do something about yeah, it. She, and that is just... Yeah. Ah, it's on fire. Yeah, Rafi Cassidy, she was in Vox Lux, which is a really interesting film, and now she's chosen to do this, and she has a good sort of like steely rage on her face. She's a young actress, but she's really quite good, and uh, even though she doesn't have a lot of credits, she's clearly making some interesting choices. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, I think The Other Lamb is tapping into a lot of more recent types of urban horror, not urban, uh, rural horror films yeah. that are really drawing on... Uh, misogyny mm. and sort of point it like the witch is another one 
Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, Hagazus is another one. There was another German film called Endsight about two young women who are sort of lost in a zombie apocalypse out in the woods. And I would say uh, Gretel and Hansel. I didn't see Gretel and Hansel, well. but yeah, hey, I'm no cats. I'm sure that uh, yeah, this this is uh, how we're exploring misogyny. These are the images we're using: being isolated in the woods and being assaulted by essentially a beast. Some yeah. some thing. Well, and, and, is, a, beast, t- and a beast and a beast with dogma too. It's not yeah. even just you can't just. It's not even just like a a monster in the woods you fight. No, no, no you, not like a slasher film. No. I meant like a metaphorical yeah. beast. In fact, there was well the the film Beast, uh, <laughs> which is also about being lost in the woods, doesn't play into this at all. But um, yeah, different thing. But yeah, I think uh, that that dogma and pressure is sort of has been set in motion long ago to rob women of their dignity and their sanity. What is fascinating for me about this film, though, mm-hmm. is that it wasn't that long ago. There yeah, are people yeah, yeah. who remember when this shit got started, mm. and it was just... And they don't even necessarily recall specifically... Like, yeah, I had nothing. He was charismatic. We decided to go live in the woods and fuck a lot. Mm. And somehow it turned into this. And now it has become just as rigid, and people just do things that are not in their best interest at all, and don't even question it. He has, like that, like a, a cave or something where people have to go when they have when they're actually menstruating mm-hmm. because they are unclean. That's some fucking it's old like school bullshit, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and people just do that, and when they're in there, they're actually like praying for their sins because they are unclean. And it's so, it, it's so angry about how people can be manipulated yeah, into yeah. this system and how this system, and how the system can perpetuate with, when, even when like the actual, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, there's so many more women than him. <laughs> they could just rise up and just take one, him. All yeah. they could do is just, if they all just rose up and slapped him in the face and kicked him out, he'd be gone. He doesn't have any actual power. Mm. That's the thing that you just want to see happen. And you start wondering, is there any hope? Is this just a system that will self-perpetuate that we fall into? Isn't that a fucking tragedy? And of course it fucking is. But I do appreciate that this movie does and really... Some terrible things happen by the end of this movie. Mm. Like, really genuinely 100% terrible. Like, oh my god. But I'm glad that... And I'm you did a wonderful job pronouncing this director's <laughs> name. And I'm not going to do as good a job. Malgorzata uh, Sumovska. Shumovska. 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 Uh, this is not a film about wallowing in the depression of the human existence. This is a film about reminding you... Of the horrors of misogyny and oh, of they're, they're and, still out there. We're, patriarchy. We're, uh, yeah, that there are three l- breaths from the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, and these things are. This is happening right now. And this is happening in microcosm, and this is happening in the macro. But there is hope, yeah, and mm. that is not forgotten here. That is not in every scene because it's horrifying. But this is not a movie that will make you feel like this is all just non yeah. nonstop despair. And I did appreciate that. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent film. It's a, it's on Amazon. Yeah. We, we didn't mention that. Coffee, uh, yeah. Coffee and Cream is on Netflix, we said. This one's on Amazon. Oh, yeah, so we got to do a better job of that. Right that now. Now. Oh, yeah. In the streaming era. The streaming era, yeah. It's not just in, in a local theater. Well, here's a film that's on uh, VOD. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is actually, like, free on any service. I think you have to pay for this one. But it's a new documentary, and it's called Slay the Dragon. 
and Slay the Dragon filled me with as much or more dread than any horror movie <laughs> that we've reviewed in some yeah. time. Uh, this is this is a documentary about gerrymandering, uh, and it's not the first documentary about gerrymandering. Uh, no, I, uh, I, in fact, when I worked uh, at the New Art Theater back in the day, we showed a film called Gerrymandering, which uh. is about gerrymandering and it was <laughs> that one was a little bit more lo-fi it was uh a how long little, ago was that it was like early 2000s like 2003 ish oh right wow now. okay yeah. so the situation has evolved since it's then. evolved since then like yeah. uh, it deserves another look and and some things have come to light including i think it's called the red state project i forgot the actual oh, name i actually forget that too yeah there was uh, uh some uh some young Jerkwad uh, on the extreme right uh, decided, you know, came, came to the conclusion, rightfully so, in fact, that well, correctly, co- so. correctly so, yeah, I, mean, I should say, justly, but correctly, uh, yeah, correctly, I say rightly, uh, correctly so, that uh, the right was losing ground. Mm-hmm. Republicans were losing ground in America because like Barack Obama you, won the presidency in a landslide. Yeah, and there was. Um, and also, they won the houses as well. Like it was yeah. just. There if was you look at legitimate uh, fear for the future of the conservative party. Exactly, and if, in fact, if you look at the numbers, you know the sort of quote liberal causes themes like things like uh, you know f- feeding the poor and abortion and, and gay gun rights control. and yeah, gun yeah. control. Most people, like the majority of people, support those things in in America. Yeah. And yet legislation keeps getting passed to the opposite. And you're wondering why that happens. And it's because of gerrymandering. This one uh, young upstart said, we need to make a concerted effort to redraw districts so we have an unfair advantage to win elections. Let's back up a little bit for people who don't know what gerrymandering is. Okay, so every 10 years in this country, we have a census. You may have just filled that out. I hope you did, because mm-hmm. the census dictates how many like legislators you have actually like fighting for you. It's really important. And every 10 years, in the majority of the states in this country, the vast majority, those legislators get to redraw the district maps uh, within each state. Mm-hmm. And those districts uh, pick you know their legislators. And so essentially, if you redraw the maps... In a clever way, mm-hmm. you can manipulate the entire democratic system so that the people who are in office are choosing who votes for them, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And there's two, can... there's two big ways to do this. You either spread the votes for your opposing party out as far as they can be, a few a few Democratic votes here, a few Democratic votes yeah, like there, if, not enough to win anything. Like if, if, a, if like all the Democrats live in the center of town and all of the Republicans live on the outside, mm. there's like creates like a little circle around the Democrats and then slice it up like, like a pizza. Yeah. And that way the Democrats only have technically a little tiny piece of each district, meaning Republicans won every district, even if there's more Republicans there or more Democrats there in the middle. There's another way of doing this. That's a little less obvious in which you do let Democrats win a few districts. However, you only let them win those districts. Mm. And when you gerrymander in either of these ways, they're called called uh, the first the first way is called cracking, and the yeah. second way is called packing. Yeah. Packing and cracking. Uh, when you gerrymander in those ways, in order to make that actually like work on a map, the maps end up looking ridiculous. Yeah, The maps make no fucking sense, and they actually show you pictures of some of the gerrymandered districts and how absurdly like squiggly and weird. Like, yeah. these, this looks like two bats hanging from a branch. It actually fucking does. Like, why? Well, um, 
streets. There, there's, and there are no end of horror stories about yeah. uh, gerrymandered districts. There was a, a fellow who was running for office in in a certain district, and his opponent, who was on the gerrymandering board. How is that not corrupt? That's still legal. Yeah, politicians can redraw their own maps. That's and that that's abs- that's, that's, that's that should that's, not be a system. That should it's a not terrible be a system. system. Uh, and to be fair, Democrats they, uh, have done this too, but Republicans not, have find it into an art. Yeah, form not nearly as insidious. Yes, Democrats have done it, and they're guilty of it, and they're uh, not apologetic about it either. No. But uh, Republicans, by and large, are the ones controlling this system. So when Obama won the presidency. Mm-hmm. There was this thing, oh no, the conservative party is doomed. And so this guy said, here's the trick. Here's what we do. Mm. We have to win as many local elections as we possibly can in 2010. We will dump all of our money and resources into this. We will play dirty national level politics on a local level. So we own those, so so that we win all of these uh, legislations. Uh, we'll, whatever. So that basically we can redraw the maps. And if mm-hmm. we draw the maps, we control everything. And all of a sudden the Republicans dominate everything and the maps get redrawn to the point that uh, we can... And that's right. Once Republicans control everything, Republicans can jam through as much legislation as they want, even if the majority of their voters do not want that. Mm-hmm. And that can be everything from busting unions... Uh, to denying people health care, to a, a return to really serious, hardcore... Uh, uh, kind of extreme right-wing ideology. Well, not just ideology, I'm talking about just election tampering, where we're going to oh, make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, like voter suppression. Uh, yeah, and that became yeah, and, uh, law throughout everywhere, so that it was, was harder for the yeah. people they didn't want to vote, Democrats, yeah. to vote. And... This film would be scary enough as is if it were essentially just the first half where it describes all of these things and how these bad practices have gone down. You start to wonder if there's any uh, hope and, in this country. And they, they, of course, you know, rather smartly start to zero in on some people who are trying to pass some anti-gerrymandering legislation in the Trump era and how difficult that is mm-hmm. and how uh, they had to sort of pass it up to the Supreme Court. And they got it got to the Supreme Court just after uh Beer Kavanaugh. What's his first name? Brett. Brett Kavanaugh was was uh, uh-huh. confirmed. I know his first name. I'm just making fun of him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it was just confirmed to the beer. Supreme Court, and uh, and of course, you know, he was this like super conservative appointee, and he has been sort of the conservative uh, sway in all of these major decisions ever since. And so, when gerrymandering um, came up before the Supreme Court, he was yeah. the deciding vote in at least one case where he said. The Supreme Court can't do this. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a thing for the Supreme Court to do. Supreme Court shouldn't help laws and the the elections and things. That sounds like a thing other people should do. It's uh, unfortunately they try really, really hard in this documentary to leave you on a hopeful note. Like, okay, there are little victories, and if we band together, if we work really hard, if we. Convass as hard as the well-moneyed machine has been doing. And if we go from door to door and knock on doors and actually convince people and get the word out, then we can make the country understand that their voices aren't being heard, even though they're the majority. Yeah. 
And there are um, people like I think in um, mm. in Michigan who are trying to start a new system where all of the future uh, electoral districts would be decided by an outside party where there mm. are no elected officials in it. Mm. There would be like I think what was it like four Democrats, four Republicans, and like five independents mm-hmm. who would be responsible for drawing the new district maps. As, as reasonable an idea as any of her. Yeah. Certainly better than letting the people who are getting elected getting the votes. decide yeah, who decide. votes. Like. That that certainly makes sense, and that and there's actually some of those in this movie. Mm. We follow like three or four people who are trying to make change happen. At least a couple of them actually get what they were getting for. At mm. least some of them are actually like making actual change that could really, really, really affect everything in this coming election. Mm. Others, not so much. This movie made me really scared. <laughs> I, there's still hope, because there's always hope. But everything is so overwhelmingly corrupt mm-hmm. in how this whole thing was set up in the first place that you just start to wonder, man, what's the fucking point? What, what can we do to stop this? Can we do anything? And to stop we can this? do stuff. It's just going to be really fucking hard in an uphill battle. And it's like sometimes if a documentary like this makes you feel like the only way. America can survive survive as if every decent person mm-hmm. becomes like Jefferson Smith from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> you have to be that willing to dedicate your entire life and mm-hmm. sacrifice and, you know, do literally everything in your power. And I'm like, some of people have day jobs. Yeah. Some people, don't have, like, have kids have that they have to do. T- this, like, yeah. it's not... I mean, it's we should all do whatever we can, but not everyone has equal capacity to dedicate all of their time and energy to it. That's not an excuse. That's just a practical reality. So I want this country to work, but man, this is actually the scariest movie I saw this week. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, as you can tell, we're both on the left, and you know, yeah. if there's if there's any listeners on the right, then you know we we apologize. Well, I don't apologize well, for the system's broken either just way. If but it yeah, was broken if, in favor of the Democrats. I was it's fucking I was broken. I was actually trying to think of you know if if there were people like who are well moneyed and really aggressively trying to uh, fight the people I disagree with. Yeah, and we're actually like manipulating the system in such mm-hmm. a way that gave uh, people I believed in uh, an advantage. And it was actually like giving like the presidents I liked and the politicians I liked and the judges I liked an advantage. Would I be as outraged? And I, th- I have to admit, I think it would take me a little while to come to terms with that. That, right. okay, I learned gerrymandering. I probably would dismiss it. Ah, it's probably not that bad. Sure. They, okay, there was a little well, because bit. Because things but, are in your you know, favor, yeah, so you like, want to believe that things work are working fine because well, they're working I, in your favor. I also want to think that, yeah, that... that even though there, they might be, che- you know, there might have been some cheating going. Just get rid of the people who are cheating. Overall, things are the way they ought to be. Yeah, and I think that's a state of mind we have to fight uh, coming uh, from whatever uh, political uh, background we come from. Yeah. That this is the way things are more or less the way things are supposed to be. This is the way America feels right now. Uh, when really a lot of people are working very hard and spending a lot of money. I mean, there, there's a scene in this movie where they talk about how one of the Koch brothers called up this little rinky-dink politician in a local district somewhere wow. to, to like 
make sure that they got the vote. There's a twist there. There is a twist there. There's a twist to that point. Mm. But what happened was, this is actually well known. It's actually, one of the things I love about this documentary, um, and this is very well made, it's just mm. harrowing, um, is if you follow in the news and you've been following some of these stories, you probably know at least some of this already. Yeah. yeah. You probably have heard about what happened with the Supreme Court cases. You probably heard a few of the scandals that broke. This was one that I had heard before. Mm. Uh, but uh, to the documentary's credit, it makes you feel that sense of suspense about what could happen, even if you already know what happened. Mm-hmm. Puts you right back in the moment because it matters. There's a guy who was elected and he was ramming through some, I think, anti union legislation. And someone called them up. It was, the Co- it was uh, one of the Koch brothers. And they basically just said, so, how's the conspiracy going? How's the conspiracy going (laughs) to deny the will of the people and just get whatever we want done while we can because we gerrymandered everything and we're controlling the system? Mm -hmm. And the guy says, it's going really well, actually. Yeah, the whole plan's working. The next guy is going to come in on the next district over. He's going to do more of this shit. We're going great. You know, red states forever. And uh, the guy who called was not one of the Koch brothers. It was a prank (laughs) call. And he just got the guy to confess to criminal conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> what the fuck? You're saying the quiet part so loud. <laughs> Why would well, you do that? Even well, on, on the phone under any circumstances of your committee and conspiracy. Really, oh, gosh. We, we've really reached the point where there's no quiet part any longer. I know, but... it's weird. Back when, uh, back when people used to pretend yeah, that they cared uh, about democracy but, uh, or whatever. I, I, I think if you care about democracy, even if things are going your way in this country right now. Oh, especially. Uh, spe- you, you need to understand that this isn't democracy right now. This, yeah. this is the control of one party over another. This, mm-hmm. is, this is a power grab. This is not democracy. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of the descent of this country in a lot yeah. of ways. It and again, sounds, it's baked it's, in it, from the beginning yeah, as a lot of bad things in this country are. Yeah. And that just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean we should. This needs to yeah, be so, fixed. And this documentary lays it all out. Yeah. So yeah, zoning and districting. Uh, but just, I'm wondering if like somebody who is on the right and you know loves right wing politics and mm-hmm. just is, is 100% red voter. Uh-huh. I'd be very uh, curious they, if you're yeah, listening to our I, podcast. Uh, for, yeah. If, we, if you're listening to your podcast, probably turn it off already, but yeah, we're, uh, we're not on that side and we make no bones about yeah. that we're trying to be honest but uh if, if you are to watch this i think there's still a lesson to be learned that so. uh, especially learning that your party is cheating this is one of my problems with a lot of these political documentaries it's not mm. that they're not well made it's that it's the people who desperately need to see these documentaries mm. are the people who probably won't because they're obviously not made for them yeah you know they're made they're not made with their ideology in mind mm. so you typically when it comes to something like Anything that even feels even remotely like a sermon, you go to your own church. Mm. <laughs> you know? That's yeah, yeah. what you go to if you want to hear a sermon. And documentaries like this sometimes feel and are marketed like sermons. Mm. So this Pre- might preaching, have trouble... converted. Yeah. yeah, maybe. And I'm not saying that this isn't useful information. This is informa- Some of this is information I didn't have before or didn't understand nearly as well before. And mm. I'm really glad I saw this. I feel like the t- the people who desperately need to see this are the people who are least likely to. And that's something that is so difficult to do in the documentary genre. Yeah. It's like it's why people put messages into fiction because you can trick people into <laughs> spin full all of a sudden yeah. like, oh, I'm just gonna see this new Gregory Peck movie. What racism is bad? <laughs> I haven't changed my life. It, it 
yeah. that's the idea. That's what happens. And the idea is supposed to make the world a better there, place. There's a, a few moments of levity, which actually come from like clips of late night talk show hosts. Like yeah. uh, John Oliver has a great, like he did a bit on gerrymandering on last week tonight, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Great and, show. And, uh, he he points out that uh, gerrymandering was named after a politician named El- Eldridge Gary, and uh, Eldridge Gary, who like started to redistrict in his favor, and the district he drew looked like a salamander. They said, "No, no, it looks like a uh, gerrymander." Now his name is Gary, not Jerry. Yeah. And the joke John Oliver made was, "So that just proves that everything about gerrymandering was fucked up from the start." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we have to move on, but definitely, this is yeah. definitely a documentary. It's called Slay the Dragon. Informative and excellent, and we highly recommend it. Uh, let's do a big shift. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Puka. Puka Lives. Specifically, Puka Lives, mm-hmm. a sequel mm-hmm. to a horror movie. There is a series on Hulu that I've always meant to get into, but it's never been able to, like, I've never been able to make the time for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a series on Hulu called Into the Dark. And, and, it's, it, and it's a film series, not a TV series. Yeah, it's like a horror anthology, but instead of, like, a half-hour Tales from the Crypt episode, you get an hour-and-a-half horror movie every single month, and every single month it's dedicated to a different holiday. So there it, are this, Easter episodes. Well, technically. This is a, a brilliant idea. Great idea. Yeah. And, yeah, um, this is uh, from the Blumhouse School. Yeah, yeah. It's it's smart, it's clever, uh, and uh, one of the more noteworthy and well-remembered installments of this that I had heard about but never got around to was one called Puka, with an exclamation point. It's directed by Nacho Vigalondo, who of course did Time Crimes and Colossal, uh, and uh, it was about a guy who was hired to become the mascot for the hot new Christmas toy. The spooky looking Furby thing. Yeah, who like repeated your words back and, to you, and, but and sometimes it, he said them back mean. It looks like, uh, it looks kind of like an Easter bunny, which was enough to make it an Easter episode. Uh, no, actually, they invented a new holiday for the, for the sequel. Oh, did it, they? It's oh. Puka Day. Oh, that's the, It's silly, but whatever. I, I thought it was an Easter thing. Anyway, the original Puka hmm. is, um, it's okay. It's pretty good. It's uh, uh, about a guy who may or may not be losing his mind and... And is wearing uh, a puka suit. For and he's a wearing a puka suit and he might be killing people mm-hmm. wearing the puka suit or maybe there's something mm-hmm. more, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. subconscious going P- on. But Puka is essentially a teddy bear with, like, bunny rabbit ears, uh-huh. uh, like a little tiny square speaker mouth and gigantic car headlight eyes with no pupils in them. The damn thing's terrifying. Mm. Can we just say that? Like a well, Furby, it's clearly mm, modeled after a Furby. Yeah. Furbies are designed to be cute. The 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 car headlight eyes on a Puka are off-putting. And if those were glowing in the corner of any child's room, that child would throw a towel over that thing, yeah. throw it out the window. There's I no think, fucking uh, way. I think the Puka is, it looks a little too designed to me. Like it doesn't mm. look like a fun toy that would be scary. It looks like something that was designed for a horror movie. Yeah, which exactly makes it less point. scary to me. Yeah, it's, it it's sort feel of like, like a real toy. It's sort of like Annabelle. I think Annabelle would be a lot scarier if uh, they got like a genuine porcelain doll because well, those things are scary because they have dead features anyway. Well, originally, Instead, Annabelle, they gave, the real Annabelle, the quote unquote real Annabelle, was mm, a Raggedy Ann. Was a Raggedy Ann doll, but they probably couldn't license Raggedy Ann for their no, they couldn't their horror movies. <laughs> but still. So, uh, but yeah, if they decided to make it a doll, just make it a regular doll. Don't give it like an angry, mean, monstery face. That's yeah. less scary. I think they overdid it. The original Pooh. Uh, hmm. It's more of a psychological thriller. Yeah. It wasn't really a monster movie. So when they came time to do a sequel to Puka, and they called it Puka Lives, they did, hmm. thank you, cats, they did what The Boy 2 did 
and they decided to rewrite the whole history of Puka yeah, well, in order to make uh, it more of a conventional monster movie. I, I, and this time, I'm all aboard. The, I, I didn't watch the original Puka, and, and I turns out I didn't need to. I looked it up. It's like, yeah, this is no. only a sequel in name. I'm only. glad I did for uh, contrast, because it's an yeah. interesting way to redirect a yeah. franchise. Mm. But beyond that, no, you don't need to see it to yeah, understand th- this movie. This one is not directed by Nacho Vigalando. It's directed by Alejandro uh, Brujues, I believe is how you pronounce yeah, it. Who did Juan Bru- of the Dead, which Brujues, I didn't see. Um, I heard was really yeah. Uh, and yeah, it turns out that the inventor of Puka, uh, she, the designer of the toy, uh, who is married to Will Wheaton, big uh, nerd cred get there. A lot of nerd cred um, in this one. Uh, well, too much nerd cred, if you ask me. Well, uh, maybe. Uh, it turns out that she was pushed out of the company for being too creepy, and her husband, Will Wheaton, comes down and says, you're too creepy, and you're saying creepy things about wanting control of this doll, and she she flips out and uh, kills him and burns the house down and dies. And this is now leaked out into... They don't call them creepypastas in this, but... They're basically creepypastas. Creepy, creepy, it's, it's an internet urban myth now. Yeah, creepypastas oh. are scary stories that have spread on the internet. Um, some are scarier than others. Slenderman is... Slenderman yeah. is probably the best-known example of this. I, and, I, and many... And this is going to be playing with the idea of the creepypasta, much like... The movie Slenderman did, but Slenderman sucked. They even call it like scary spaghetti, or like that. They I thought they actually called it a creepypasta. Was it just not? They didn't. They for some reason they changed the word. I'm not sure if creepypasta is like copyrighted by somebody, but yeah, that's weird. But uh, yeah, it it deals. uh, Puka lives because this new myth is sort of hanging over uh, the toy. Deals with this uh, new era of the way internet death can spread. Now, I didn't see the Slenderman movie. You said it was terrible. Oh, so bad, dude. Um, I did see really I did see the bad. HBO documentary about Slenderman and that one was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I heard that was good. Uh, but yeah, this and there have been several thrillers about how proliferation of information on the internet can get out of your control and create something in this case quite literally uh, that is monstrous and horrible and beyond your control. Well, just the idea uh, of, I think they're called thought forms is the idea where yeah. if enough people believe in something, it literally becomes real. Mm. It's kind of the fundamental idea behind American gods, where if enough people well, believe that's, that's in something, a, that person just manifests. Yeah, th- uh, thought forms are, are a, a Buddhist philosophy. But, well, yeah. Um, but in any case, that's, what, that's what's been common in sort of Western mm. uh, fiction is yeah, the idea so, that if you believe in something hard mm. enough, it can become real. That's mm. something that we're starting to just sort of accept as a horror movie mm. trope, mm. much like the inevitable apocalypse will have zombies in it. Right, right. You know, it's, it's uh, no, but mm. we're starting to just accept that in order to get mm. our stories made. Um, so the, at the, the start main, of this movie... Yeah, the main character is a guy named Derek. Uh, he's played by a very good uh, Malcolm Barrett. I, I haven't seen him before, and I think he's really good. He's, yeah. he's good at playing serious drama in this movie that is clearly completely ridiculous. Mm. Uh, it's called Puka Lives, for goodness sake. And he uh, has sort of blown the lid off of internet personality, uh, a really, like, fuck Jerry type internet personality is just sort of really caustic and mean. Yeah. And as such, that guy has uh, turned his army of followers against this this guy, this yeah. guy Derek. They use terminology uh, like he's canceled, but mm. in actuality, it's way more like Gamergate, where yeah, there's, like... They're oh, doxing this, him. And yeah, you know. where someone, like, you know, we just don't like this person. It's not that he actually did anything wrong. Mm. Uh, so he is being constantly harassed by people who find out where he lives, throw eggs at mm. him, 
bug him on spray his phone his all car. day. Yeah. His, his life has been destroyed. He lost his job, and now he's moved back into his hometown. He's moved back in with old, I guess, high school friends. Played by... Felicia Day and yeah. Jonah Ray. Felicia Day, both of whom from the new MST3K. Both of well, whom I'm, I quite like. Um, Felicia Day is... She's one of those curious personalities who I don't really know what like she was initially known for. She I just think. sort of become this sort of presence everywhere. Like she, she, she didn't like host a show or like she was did the, one thing that she became known she for. Was, she was initially like I think her first big breaks were in Joss Whedon's show. She was in the mm. last season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Uh, she was one of the stars of Doctor Horrible Sing Along Blog, mm. and then oh, she yeah, cr- yeah. and then she created and starred in. Uh, a a web series, one of the Mm. first like truly successful web series about a group of disparate people who meet and become friends uh, through playing Warcraft together. Mm, So it was a sitcom based on Warcraft and that became a a huge hit and that led to her getting a big YouTube channel and writing books. She's she's earned her credit. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. just... When you cast Felicia Day and Jonah Ray in your movie, you're, you're grabbing for cred. Not necessarily. Uh, and Will get, Wheaton. And Will Wheaton, yeah. yeah. So clearly they're going for cred and not necessarily because those people are fine actors in their own right. I actually think they're fine in this they're, because they're this movie has a very this. light tone. It's distracting, is my point, because I know mm. who these people are and what they represent. I think they're uh, supposed to represent like voices on the internet in mm. a movie about voices on the internet, yeah, and I don't I, think it gets any cleverer than that, but. Mm. I think that's what they were going for. Anyway, Der- Derek and his buddies all, are all getting drunk one evening and decide, how do we get back at the internet for ruining my life? And Derek is has been a little bit guarded about how bad he feels his life has become. So he sort of steps forward and says, we need to create a challenge. And I think they referenced something called Momo, which I had to look up. Oh, Momo's fucked up. Yeah, I didn't know the Momo challenge. Yeah, Momo's now creepy. I do. Momo's I, creepy. I kind of wish I don't know that. I like right. the I like the sculpture that was uh, associated with Momo, that weird kind of bird-looking woman. Yeah, it's creepy. Um, but yeah, Momo is a fucked up no, challenge. There's but the yeah, but the, the idea I, is the ice bucket challenge yeah, is another one they talked about. They decided we, we're going to come up with the Puka challenge to get back at the people who are making, you know, being mean to me. And a lot of the people who he's now working for the Puka company, Puka is still a hit toy. Mm. Um, which uh, calls into question some of the reality of the original movie, but its original movie probably wasn't all that real. Mm. But yeah, Puka's still a hit toy. It is in the middle of a new product launch. They're going to launch a new design of it. And several of the people at this party, and I guess the whole company is based in their hometown, like work mm. for the Puka company. And they're both talking about how much their boss sucks. They hate their job. They hate this guy. And so they come up with a challenge that combines elements of the actual real-life tragedy that befell the woman who created Puka. Um, just some fucked up shit that's really unpleasant so that mm. you have to, like, eat ashes. Because mm. like, get... she died in a fire, so you yeah. have to eat ash. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. and then if you do it. the Puka dance, which is this, like, kind of Teletubbies-type dance. While, while wearing the mask. While that's wearing the Puka part, mask. Yeah. Uh, Puka will show up, and if you've been naughty, Puka will attack you. Mm. And of course, and so then, many people course, do this that it happens. Well, and part of it is you have to perpetuate it. You have to like yeah. tag your friends, and that's yeah. that's a way to summon Puka. And of course, this becomes so popular that this become be, starts happening. Puka starts appearing mm-hmm. in the big bear in the big fuzzy bear suit at first, mm-hmm. and, that's uh, and murdering how they, people. How and they then, play with the because mm-hmm. as the as the story like grows mm-hmm. and people start saying like it comes like a game of telephone. Like what mm-hmm. does Puka look like? How is Puka killing you? Until the point comes by the end of the movie that the Puka that they're fighting at the end of the movie is nothing like the original Puka. Yeah, yeah, which is. Pretty 
clever, it's, actually. It's, I it's like a, that. Yeah, it's, they it's put clever. Some there's, ideas in there. There's some good thoughts in here about sort of the proliferation of this sort of culture. And uh, I think this one is a lot cleverer than a lot of teen dramas I've seen recently that try to demonize modern technological life. Yeah. I'm thinking of a movie like Countdown, which is crap. <laughs> It is. I enjoyed yeah. watching it, but it is crap. It's crap. So tonight, or friend request, which is crap. Friend request is mega crap. <laughs> it's really hor- friend request. Like, friend unfriended request is- has some good ideas in it. Unfriended two sucks. Right. Unfriended. Unfriended is. Um, I'm sorry. Friend request is. So fucking bad. Everyone needs to see yeah, it. It's one is of those, it still on Netflix? Everyone, it's one do of those yourself bad a movies favor. That you kind of need to watch. It's so fucking hilarious. Yeah, what this movie thinks social media is like. There comes like she's being haunted by a ghost who's haunted Facebook, like, and it's and like they even look in. They look into the code, like yeah. a Facebook code on her page, and there's like mystic mi- runes, mystic in it. Wiccan runes hidden it's in the code, so, and she's like walking down the street looking all sad, and there's like a counter on a the screen. Chiron appears on the. Screen. Kicking down as she's gradually losing Facebook followers oh, as though anyone gives a shit. As it's as amazing. A, now, if, if there were some sort of conceit, like she's losing Facebook followers and like her body begins vanishing, like that would be a, maybe some, but no, you can no. Play with that. Can play like, with that, that would at least mean something, but no, yeah. it's just, oh no, I'm unpopular. Okay. I think Puka Lives is about people in their 30s yeah. and I think they're a little bit more out of their element, which makes the movie a hair better than some of those other ones. Yeah, because a lot There's of them are trying to figure out how trying, the internet yeah, works. Trying to figure it out, trying to understand that uh, spreading information is a difficult thing to curtail, Yeah, especially once it's out there. And even if it is creating death, people will still do this in a sort of snarky fashion. Well, and I think it's actually pretty smart the way it's constructed, where mm. it is, uh, it's a mirror image, where this guy mm. got doxxed, Mm-hmm. And has been tortured by something that, that, yeah, this this guy who runs this like website, this PewDiePie type dude, mm. uh, he isn't letting go of this, and he keeps telling his friends to like go out there and harass and hurt this guy. But even if he did, they'd still do it. It's mm. stuck. It'll it would eventually die down yeah. eventually, but yeah. you're still he's stuck with that. Maybe, like, uh... but th- but the idea is he does the same thing, and he doesn't have the evil in his heart for it and he goes to regret it and he has to try to find a way to undo it but maybe you can't maybe it's just a Pandora's box and in fact in order to sort of prove that it were in the best shot of the movie actually there's a great Mm. shot where he's back in his office and it's a night and all the other cubicles are dark and it's full of puka toys Yeah, and he decides to do the challenge he's like okay fine I'll just do it and then you know the audience is screaming no yeah, but like he he's trying does, to prove yeah. that it, he's trying to prove to himself that it isn't real because yeah, he's so, heard these urban legends. Like, there's no so, way. So I'll like, do it myself. Takes I a little, it. Yeah, he takes a little cigarette ash out of an ashtray, puts it on his tongue, and does the song. Like, not serious. Like, okay, and that's it. And then he starts working, and we see one of the puka toys, like its big red, round red eyes, like light up in the corner. And it's a single static shot from the ceiling. It's almost yeah. like a security cam angle. And uh, oh, kitty meowing. Luke is scared. And very slowly, like we get to see every single one of those pukas turn on and yeah. like, just blink on bit. all over the room. That's a really good shot. It's a good bit. There's a lot um, of good individual yeah, bits think, and moments in this. I think this film, however, is torn between trying to be sort of a good commentary on 
the way internet information is spread and just being something kind of broad and campy about like uh, this goofy looking toy murdering people. I think it's trying to be both. I think it is going, I, I, I think, think it is not aiming for comedy perfectly well, but I think yeah. it's aiming for comedy more than it is horror. That, I think yeah, there's a couple sure. of scenes that, yeah, maybe if you're watching as a little kids, they get scary, mm. but for the most part, this is a slumber party type movie mm. with like nerd cred heroes. Okay. I'll feed you guys one second. <laughs> Uh, with like a bunch of nerd cred folks who are playing mm. off of their internet celebrity. I actually think Jonah Ray in particular is actually like really good as this uh, laid back, has absolutely no sense of uh, self introspection mm. or anything of that. He's just living his life and doesn't care. He's just t- very typical. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are moments between him and Felicia Day where. He's just a bro. He's just he's not a bad guy. He plays video games, he watches he's, horror movies. He's a movies. little mean to his wife. He's a little yeah. mean to his wife, but I want to talk about this because I actually think the relationship is better written than it normally would be here. Mm. She has her own thing. She's very much into like mysticism and crystals and mm. stuff and they don't share that. Yeah. She doesn't share his thing. He doesn't share her thing. They have a child. They're pretty good together, but their differing interests and their differing perspectives on life have over time built a bit of a schism in their relationship and that's where all of their snarkiness towards each other comes from and they actually do start to deal with that real marital issue over Mm. the course of the film i'm not saying it's It's not super nuanced or anything it's not shortcuts it's not it's not like an amazing (laughs) story about relationship Mm. it's just pretty well done Given oh, the yeah. the level of of scope that we're dealing with here, okay. and so I think Jonah Ray is particularly good. I think Felicia Day does her job quite nicely. The whole cast is very strong. Mm. Um, there's enough jokes that landed. There's more jokes that landed here than landed in Coffee and Kareem. Oh well, fair. <laughs> like at least consistently throughout. Like there's no like one Betty Gilpin freakout moment that'll just make you lose your shit. But you also don't have to wade through a bunch of nearly unwatchable stuff in order to get to something entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It's just lightly entertaining throughout. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. <laughs> it is not a. It is not amazing, but it's, it's a little yeah. cleverer than it ne- than it than it needs to be. Some good scary little bits. It's mostly funny. I quite liked it. All right, fair. Yeah, fair. fair. Um, yeah, I liked it too. Um, I I for the first bit, I wasn't. I, I think I felt a little bit of whiplash because mm. some because it's like okay, this is like really scary, and then they go for something that. Like it's almost on the edge of something like Army of Darkness, where yeah. they're just gonna like start kicking ass and doing like cool action movie stuff. And I was turned off a little bit by those parts, but yeah, I think overall it does fall together well enough. Mm-hmm. So tell me about uh, the Invisible Life. Uh, Invisible Life. Uh, it came out in December. We missed it. No. I know it was, it was one of the so it's gone it's gone forever so can't talk about it never mind but it's the best movie I've ever seen man you totally missed it no uh, uh, it's actually really quite good um, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's an international film it's it's a, a, it got Academy. a Academy a very brief run in like LA and New York back in December a lot of the other critics reviewed it back then because mm-hmm. they got to see it you and, and I had missed it it uh, had that blink you miss it uh, release so that it would be eligible for the Academy Award for best uh, international feature yeah. uh, it did not get nominated I don't mm-hmm. think uh, it, it did not get nominated. Yeah. This was Brazil's entry, and yeah, it did not get nominated for Best International Feature, and it now is now get, now yeah now it's getting a release on Amazon. Uh, it's part of I think it's part of Prime. You don't have to pay extra for it. Yeah, uh, it's a film by uh, Kareem Ainos. It takes place in Rio de Janeiro in the 1950s, and uh, just like the other Lamb, it's really aggressively exploding. 
uh, misogyny, especially in a, an ultra conservative time and place mm. like 1950s Rio de Janeiro. It's about two sisters. Um, their names are. Uh, bah, 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 let me get the the characters down. Eurydice and and Gida. Eurydice and Gida are two sisters. They're very close. They establish early in the movie that they have a, a sororal regard that kind of transcends their uh, their scenario. But it's not in sort of this saccharine, lovey-dovey sort of way. You know, think of something like Frozen, mm. where you go, oh, they used to be such good sisters because they played together as little girls. Okay, that's very sweet. But these two women have grown, you know, they're, you know, they're young. They're like in their like 18 and 20, respectively, I believe. But they're used to now interacting with one another as adults, and they're kind of back-to-back most of the time in sort of fighting off the the horrors of the world around them. Mm. That is to say, their father and their mother and how oppressive they've been, how how he tries to control their lives. Uh, Gita runs off with a sailor, gets pregnant, gets married, runs off to Greece, and is abruptly dumped. Her life sucks. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we do get to see sort of her, the whirlwind romance of her dating this sailor and... We get to uh, hear a narration from Eurydice, who stayed home, uh, writing out to her sister, trying to sort of put things together as to where she might be, even though they're they're not in contact. Mm. And they spend the rest of the movie trying to find one another, even though... So it's like an American uh, tale. It's like an American tale. And in fact, there are scenes just like in an American tale where they pass through the same room at the same time and don't see each other. Ah! Uh, yeah, there's a scene where uh, Gita, who is now raising her young child, goes to a restaurant where she's, you know, working with the wait staff now mm-hmm. and sees her father like through a fish tank and can't stand it. And she has to go. And it turns out the father was there having dinner with the other daughter at that uh, time. It was just like in the that's bathroom. That always at the time. kills me. Uh, that kills me every yeah. time I watch an American tale. Uh, meanwhile. <clears throat> Eurydice is trying to kind it's of... Is Eurydice, not Eurydice? Because that's how it's originally pronounced. Well, in Greek. Uh, oh, I'm just yeah. checking. Okay. This, this is the... the I, I apologize if I'm, I'm whizzing that. No, just yeah, curious. Just want to make sure it's the, right. I think this is the, the way you pronounce it, Portuguese style. Okay. Um, she's also trying to, you know, make the best of her scenario by marrying, because this is one of the only options that women are afforded in, at the time and place. And... The guy she chooses is just sort of a regular layabout, and he has control over her life in a really kind of aggressively sexual way without him ever really kind of acknowledging it. The way sex is depicted in this movie Mm. is kind of gross, that uh, even though sex is something that, you know, women, of course, desire and, and want to go out and pursue and have... It is never, ever on their terms in this film. It is always on the man's terms. It's always, you know, even though uh, the man and the woman are experiencing the same sexual encounter, the man is always coming out on the other side feeling like, wow, that was really great. And the woman is like, that, what the fuck just happened? This is terrible. So uh, it, it's sort of pointing out that there's always been this kind of sexual disconnect between men and women and the way it depicts sex in this really unsexy, unflattering sort of way. Mm. And of course, as time passes, we get to see uh, uh, the Gita character 
she's not because she is essentially a quote a fallen woman she's divorced she has a mm. child she can't get a job anywhere what where only, is this this is present day or no, the 1950s 1950s sorry yeah so the only that. the only person she can really the uh, <clears throat> really count on is a local madam who decides to put her up and in a weird way she has much more freedom of movement and warmth and family with essentially these fringe people yeah. than she does with anybody in the mainstream yeah uh, which you know you might find from time to time if you are of uh, in a marginalized community you'll find that there is a community um i, re- I re- was reminded of uh, jonathan coet's film turnation yeah uh, he was one. he was a young gay man in texas i believe and he was not accepted by his ultra conservative community but he was able to find actually a lot of solace and warmth and family in fleeing it and he fleed to the local gay community and found a lot more love there mm. uh so it was wonderful turnation is a bloody amazing i wish more people had it's seen it's that. one of the best films of the 2000s yeah. i think you need to seek that thing out that's and, a great and and he literally made it for like fifty dollars and a lot of time, like just to like the actual physical making of it. Yeah, fifty bucks. It's like it's like all of his the home cost, movies. Yeah, the like, cost the cost yeah. of his camera and like all of the physical media that he had to buy to fill it over the years, yeah. and then he edited it all together and did you know did like the in music like and, and like whatever the com- program comes with a MacBook. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and uh, whatever. Um, I think he may have even done the music himself. And yeah, it's incredibly cheap, it's, but incredibly beautiful. It's really, really moving. It's really personal. It's really, really wonderful. Uh, but that's Tarnation. Um, Invisible Life, I think, is a really wonderfully damning look at the patriarchy and the damage it does without the men even realizing what's going on. And how, you know, the father character thinks he's doing what's right and, you know, maintaining family honor. And he's confronted late in his life and the look of cluelessness on his face is like, I didn't even realize people were getting hurt here. Mm. Or I kind of realized it, but I wasn't really going to acknowledge it because these other things, this like bullshit male things were more important to me at the time. And uh, the two actresses who play Eurydice and, uh, and Gita, uh, Carol Duarte and uh, Julia Stockler, uh, especially Carol Duarte are yeah. amazing in this movie. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a little bit of a, and it, it takes place from the fifties all the way up to the 1980s. We do get to see these characters as they age, as time passes and the world just sort of robs them of everything they've had and gives them a, a different kind of life and really illustrates how society was constructed against them from the start and mm. how their sisterly love was the only thing that could really survive this feels like one of those family epics from the 1980s. Hmm. Uh, like Terms of Endearment. The, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the kinds of films adults were watching in the 1980s. Yeah. That, these sort of, of color purple sort of thing. Yeah. Where it takes place over a grand amount of time. And they're really trying to encapsulate and bring justice to a life that has been aggrieved. It's beautiful. That sounds fucking great. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just... I, I have nothing to contribute. I didn't get to see this one. Right. So uh, let's just move on to our uh, ratings. All right. Here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. A C is average. Mm-hmm. Just a typical movie. C- minus is below average. Anywhere from not good to a piece of crap. <laughs> C- plus is above average. Anywhere mm-hmm. from quite good to the best movie ever. And then we gave, like, cats, like, a D-plus or something. So, uh, <laughs> the one exception we ever did. Uh, but, uh, so let's, let's just go through it backwards. Uh, Invisible Life. Whitney, mm. what's your rating? That is a C-plus. Sounds that like. really excellent. Okay. Really, really excellent. Uh, Puka Lives. 
Uh, I'm going to give this one a very mild C+. I was simply <laughs> entertained. Right, well, I had no profound experience in terms of humor, drama, or horror, but it was consistently well-crafted, amusingly acted, reasonably clever. I had a good time. All of those things are true with me as well, but I'm still giving it a C. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, shock that it didn't suck shouldn't be enough to give it a C+. I wasn't shocked that it didn't suck. Uh, I was just... I, I was shocked it didn't suck. Ah, okay. I, I expected it to suck and found like a decent film in there, but it's still a C. Fair enough. Uh, Slay the Dragon, new documentary about gerrymandering. That's a big old C+. This is one of those must-see documentaries. It's a, it's a classroom film. Like, yeah. They need to show it to high school kids. But in a good way, and I think mm. it's very riveting, uh, in yeah. addition to being informative. So I do hope everyone checks it out. So I'm giving that a C+. Winning? Mm. Also a C+, definitely. Okay. Uh, the Other Lamb. The other lamb also a C plus. Um, I found it just really creeping, uh, creepy. Filled me full of like dread and horror and all the things I like out of a, a horror movie. Yeah, and I think it is a, a really kind of salient voice in uh, this new, I guess you could call it a subgenre now of uh, wilderness feminist horror. <laughs> I want to see you write an article mm. about that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm also going to give it a C plus. It's a it's a low C plus for me. I feel that the pacing is sometimes a little on the slow side, but it's all going somewhere important. And I was glad for the entire journey by the time it was done. Uh, so yes, very excellent uh, mm. a new horror movie. And uh, then Coffee and Kareem. Whitney, what would you give the first twenty minutes of Coffee and Kareem? Um, well, you see. The first 20 minutes I saw had a lot of Taraji P. Henson and Betty Gilpin. Uh-huh. So I didn't, like, get to spend a long time with Ed Helms yet. Mm-hmm. So it was fine up until... <laughs> up until the, not great. Yeah, I'm giving this one a big old C-. minus. Um, <laughs> okay, a, a big old C-, minus, rating, except but... when Taraji P. Henson and Betty Gilpin were on screen. Mm. Both of them, like, just dominated this movie yeah. and made it great for brief moments. But unfortunately, the vast majority of the film is not about them, and that is a huge, huge shame. Mm. So uh, those are the new releases for this last week. And now it is time to move on to the critically acclaimed streaming club. Once again, uh, we invited all of our patrons to vote for what film from the Criterion Channel streaming service that one or both of us hadn't seen we were going to review on this week's show. Mm. And you selected... Akira Kurosawa's kidnapping thriller, High and Low, starring, of course, uh, uh, Toshiro Mifune. Toshiro Mifune and the great Tatsuya Nakadai. Toshiro Mifune is also mm. great, but I feel like Tatsuya Nakadai is somehow, sometimes overlooked. Mm. Uh, they both worked with Kurosawa a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, this is the first time I had seen it. Whitney, you had seen mm. it before. So Whitney, yeah. why don't you set up this movie and why it is considered mm. such a classic? Well, um, it's... It's based on an American noir novel, for one, so it takes a lot of its its trappings and the story from American cliches, but it, of course, is a Japanese film, so it feels, I think it's fair to say, it feels Japanese. Uh, Kurosawa uh, cast uh, Toshiro Mifune as, he typically does, a very kind of morally complex character. Uh, it's rare that uh, Mifune plays just sort of heroes. Uh, for mm. for Kurosawa, that is especially for uh, Kurosawa. Yeah. But uh, he plays the he's not the the president, but he's one of the high muckety mucks in a shoe company, and he has been slowly he reveals early in the movie been buying out his shares in the company so he can have controlling interest so he can make shoes his way. He has integrity. Yeah, there's a bunch there's, of there's uh, a bunch yeah. of like scheming a holes. 
Yeah. Uh, yuppie yes men are saying we yeah. can we can make so much more money much more quickly. We can make a quick buck if we switch to cheaper shoes. Yeah. Not he, not fashionable, just easy to make and fast. Oh, they want it to be fashionable, but they just want them to explode after a month so mm. you have to buy more shoes. And he says that's mm. not the right way to make shoes. There's a lot of the whole opening of this movie. It's like 20 minutes of the film too. It's just, just discussing men, shoes. men yeah. sitting around talking about what women want from shoes, and I'm mm. like, have you ever asked a woman? I'm curious. I mean, it seems like Tashir Mafuni's got like uh. the the best beat on the situation, but it's a bunch of dudes, mm. old dudes, just staring at shoes and going, just like, eh, they probably like this. Eh. So they these assholes are scheming to take over the company. And they want to share Mafoni's shares so that uh, it will be a done deal. Because mm. then they'll have the controlling and controlling amount of stock. Uh, little did they know, Tashir Mafoni has been buying up all the stock himself. But he is leveraged to the hilt. It's all mortgage. He's mortgaged it's all, his house. He didn't yeah. tell his family about this either. No, no, no. He is basically, he's like $30 million in debt right now. And if it all goes his way, he'll get it all back. Mm. But if it doesn't go his way, they're but he has put everything into this gamble. So, you know how when your life is going one way and then something shitty happens and completely mm-hmm. changes the direction of your entire life? Okay, he gets a phone call. Yeah, like literally like the guys have just left from this meeting like 10 minutes ago. He gets a phone call saying your son has been kidnapped. We've kidnapped your son. Yeah. Uh, we need a, we need all essentially all of the money that you have as yeah. ransom. And uh, he's on the phone. He's like, well, you have my son. Absolutely. I'm going to pay the ransom. Yeah. It's like my, my son's life isn't worth anything. Yeah. And he's he actually, uh, he's like, very, it, I'm doing this for my family. What's the point? You know, like I, yeah, of course, but, but then the money, then almost as quickly, his son walks in the room and says, Hey dad, it's like, Oh, well you don't have my son. Cause he's in the room. Bye. And he hangs up uh-huh. and then he gets called back and says, uh, we did kidnap a kid, but it's, there was a mix up. It's your chauffeur's kid. Yeah. And the chauffeur's in the room. And Tajima Phone's actually like thinking to himself, well, that guy can't afford the ransom. You'll just have to give him back and everything's fine, right? And the kidnapper says, no, we still want you to pay it. Mm. And he's like, but it's not my kid. And they're like, well, the kid will die if you don't. You okay with that? And, and, so, and he, then he goes, well, and the chauffeur's gets, looking at his face going, the fuck, dude? But but he's not yeah. saying the fuck, dude. No, no. He's, he's yeah. actually like, it's it, High and Low is a film... Well, First off, the title is, is actually like an incorrect translation of Heaven and Hell. Heaven and Hell, But yeah. High and Low is actually very fitting because there's a lot of talk about uh, social and economic station mm-hmm. here. So even though the chauffeur is the aggrieved party in this situation, he's actually lower in like class and stature than his employer. And so there are times when he's like saying, like, could you please save my son? Could you please pay to save my son from this kidnapper? And then the Shermafuna goes on this big, long rant. About how if I do this, the company will go under, my family will go under, everything mm. will be destroyed. And then the chauffeur apologizes mm. because I'm sorry, well, I really wasn't thinking about your side of it. And and what uh, Kurosawa is clearly revealing here with this conver- this conversation, which is still relatively early in this movie. It's pretty long. It's two, about two and a half hours. I thought the whole movie was going to be this conversation. Mm. It's only like the first half, but yeah. what a conversation to have. It's and what a great moral quandary. It, it kind of shows, well, there's no moral quandary. Well, you know what I mean. Like, the well, the, the yeah, character exactly. is convinced that there's a moral quandary. In the mm. audience, we know a child's life is worth nothing. It's worth everything. With everything, you know, yeah. Nothing worth, is yeah. worth sacrificing exactly. the child's life, is my point. But yeah, there's there's no moral problem here. The, the, the moral thing to do is get the kid back and make sure they're safe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
that's the first step you take. And, you know, you start worrying about your finances after that. Yeah. Um, Just like you would in any crisis. Exactly. Oh, no. We have to take this guy to the, our, our, our son to the emergency room and it'll bankrupt us. He still has to go to the emergency room. The, the bankrupting doesn't so matter right I'm, now. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Does Toshiro Mifune's character, at the, by the end, he's said to be sort of uh, somebody who has a lot of morals. Mm-hmm. He was actually pulled out of his financial straits because he did the right thing at the end of the day, and right. he was said to have integrity. Does his character have integrity? I would argue... Mm. Mostly. Okay. I believe that he... Initially, he did the right thing because it was in his own best interest, not because necessarily the moral thing to do. He cares about his son. Mm. I'm not saying that's not the right thing to do in that situation if your son is kidnapped, but it's not really a moral question you have to solve. You just do it because it's your son. Mm. When a situation is presented that's more ethically complicated, he waffles. Well, it's, and it's not even more ethically complicated. It's just he has well, no, no, no personal interest in that him, Well, to yeah. him, it's more ethically complicated mm-hmm. because now that it's not my responsibility, he mm-hmm. argues, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all the bullshit rhetoric that people say to themselves about protecting their whatever wealth that they have comes into play. Mm-hmm. I have all of this wealth. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's not for him. It's for me. I did this. Mm-hmm. So he has to fight through... All of this bullshit, mm. all of this, uh, I, I, let's just call it capitalist bullshit, mm. all this capitalist bullshit, and say, get and finally get to the point where I have to do the right thing. Mm. And it's only when it stops being an academic exercise that he finally does the right thing. Mm. Now, initially, he doesn't want to do it. A lot of people are talking to him. It's basically just trying, his wife is crying. It's just she wants him to do the right thing. And he just can't convince himself that not acting in the best interest of his own personal family and his own business is not the moral thing to do in this situation. Mm. And so they start like getting him on little things. Like, okay, maybe you don't have to pay it. Could you tell him you'll pay it? And mm. then that buys us time, and then we can set up an exchange, and then we can get the kid back, and he says, okay, fine. Mm. And then... During that exchange, which is a really riveting sequence on a train, which doesn't go the way any of them expected to, um, when he sees the kid, he's immediately like every facade is torn down and he's like, just give him the money, save the kid, save the kid. He has to do it. So I think deep down he's got a moral, he's got morality within him, but he has let that get completely corrupted and not in like an evil you know political conspiracy kind of way, but just in a typical everyday I'm in it for myself yeah, kind of it, way and he has to fight through that so I think by the end he's kind of got it back but I would, it uh, should have been an easier question I, I would be tempted to say that this is a very cynical film if I didn't know Kurosawa better Kurosawa yeah. made very optimistic films it, uh, Yojimbo not so much Yojimbo is like <laughs> Yojimbo and Sanjiro are like straightforward cynicism <laughs> but uh, well, I think Sanjiro is Sanjiro is, less I, so I but, think yeah. Sanjiro is more critical of cynicism but yeah there are well, a couple um, of exceptions he's he's only fitfully cynical he's actually a very uh, calm and, and moral filmmaker that's why he's one of my favorites and I think uh, I, I looked up uh, 
the review from the Washington Post for High and Low mm-hmm. from like 1963. Didn't they compare it to Macbeth? They did. They said this is what would happen if Macbeth had married better. <laughs> that essentially, because you know, Lady Macbeth sort of urges him to do yeah, Lady Macbeth, e- increasingly it, it, evil things. It's problematic character in some regards, but, but yeah. He, the point, I think a big point of Macbeth, though, is that he's sort of a, a moral vessel yet to be filled. Mm-hmm. He has yet and, to decide if he's moral or not. And, you know, it's when he brushes up against the supernatural thing that puts ambition in the vessel. And then, of course, his wife puts more ambition in the vessel until he's just sort of overflowing with enough capacity to do murder. I don't think Macbeth is necessarily like a forthright villainous character. He doesn't get off on his evil. He's just sort of going along with it because he's kind of weak-willed. And I feel the same way about uh, the character in High and Low, the Toshiro Mifune character. He is a vessel. He has only ever lived for sort of comfort and wealth in this really kind of empty sort of way. And when he's finally comes up against a moral quandary, the only thing he can think about is money. You know, oh, oh and it, again, it's like, again, it's not a moral quandary when he's no, it's a moral, when he's, it's when moral he's asked, simplicity. asked to sacrifice his wealth for something that's not in his interest. He he's never even thought of that before. Right. And so I think this is one by, of the reasons why I don't buy into Darth Vader's redemption, because mm-hmm. when he's oh, he only saved was his own son. Mm-hmm. He never had this moral quandary when people were dying in the billions because that, of the Death Star. It yeah, was only yeah. when his own son might be killed that he's just like, OK, that that doesn't really work for me. I'll kill this guy instead. Like, I don't buy that as a moral redemption for here. At least the Jeremy Funny's character eventually did the right, right thing. He he did the right, right thing because I think he had discovered right for the first time. And I think the character does not have integrity until the end of the movie when he's open to the idea of something. I think he's just, this is the start of his moral journey. And I think that's really... It's called high and low, but it ends on the high. I want to talk about like the whole procedural element of this movie because that part's mm. way ahead of its time. But let's just keep mm. talking about this character arc for a minute. For me, I think my favorite part of this whole movie mm. is after he has thrown the money out the window of the moving train. Uh-huh. No idea if he's ever going to get The police are going to try to get it back, but he has no idea if he's ever going to get that yeah. back. He's Everything in his house has like a tick, as like a pink slip on it, because it's gonna get sold off to pay for mm. his debts. And all of a sudden, then the cops who were talking about like, okay, we've got these new leads, and we find out he might be in this building, or he might have used this payphone. And, hey, what's going on over there? Mm. And they see this guy, who was a titan of industry yesterday, mowing his own lawn, <laughs> and he can tell he's out of practice. Mm. But you can also tell that he's just kind of getting used to the idea that this is the status quo now. Yeah. That he has been knocked down, but he's kind of at peace with that. Because, yeah, he made a sacrifice. It's not an insubstantial sacrifice. But it's... He's he's comfortable with it. Mm. And he's just going to make do. That's really quite beautiful. It's interesting that that arc happens so quickly, though, because the movie keeps going for a really long time. It's over two hours, this yeah, movie. Yeah. I'm not going to say that, like, it loses a lot of steam, but, like, I, you would think... You're, I, that, you're still that entranced car- throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's still yeah. a good movie. I just, like, you'd think that, like, in conventionally, in a movie, a main character whose moral journey is at the center of this all mm. would reach the end of their journey towards the end that's Mm. just how typical screenplay structure works that's not here Mm. we have to now that this guy is actually sacrificed something now he's actually worth fighting for Mm. and so everyone is all the police are just saying we got to do it for this guy 
This guy sacrificed. This guy didn't have to do that. Well, I, and I think it's it's one of those things like um, I've seen so many cartoons about this where like a villain character like has to do something that looks nice and everybody starts saying, oh, he's such a nice guy, even though he's really kind of a villain at heart. Mm-hmm. And it's through hearing people talk about him in glowing terms that he realizes he can be good. Yeah. That's what's going on here. A I think bit, yeah. I think he actually, we saw right at the beginning how morally fraught he is mm-hmm. and how empty he is and how in sort of doing this thing kind of out of an almost autonomous, like automatic desperation. Well, it was it was instinct. Yeah. He just yeah. he had to do the right thing. He couldn't was, not do the right mm, thing in the moment. Mm. It's when it, when it was an academic exercise, he could work his brain around the idea of putting his family first. Mm. But when it's tangible and it's life or death and it's right there, he realizes there's only one just, place yeah. to make. So there, there's this yeah. kind of moment of blind desperation in mm-hmm. this man's life that I think Kurosawa is saying is the start of moral repair. I that, want, that he's kind of shaken from complacency and put into a world where he can he's allowed to be on a path to being a better person. Now, this, of course, is all happening in the background to a really interesting police procedural yes. and a really interesting use of color. I, uh, <laughs> I want to talk about both those things. Before right. we move on all the way, because I actually I already missed my moment. Oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned Macbeth, mm. and I never get a chance to talk about this. I want to talk about my favorite short stories. Mm. Did you ever read The Macbeth Murder Mystery by James Thurber? I didn't. I know of it, though. Okay, yeah. so James Thurber is a very, very funny writer mm-hmm. uh, from the 20s and 30s in particular. And he wrote a short story called The Macbeth Murder Mystery, mm-hmm. which is about a man who meets a woman on a train. Mm-hmm. And she is reading Macbeth, but she was convinced that it was a mystery novel instead of like this Shakespearean tragedy. Mm-hmm. And she's not convinced that Macbeth did it. <laughs> and okay. he's, And it's just her... Reworking the story in her head into something completely different. Mm. And it is such a wonderful, funny treatise on how you can look at the exact same material just through a slightly different lens and get something completely different out of it, and how it's also kind of valid. <laughs> uh, it's really, really great, and I hope everyone reads it. It's, it's pretty easy to find online. Anyway, but yeah, so we've had this moral journey in High and Low, but... Yeah, it's also just a kidnapping movie. And it's worth pointing out that kidnapping has always been in movies, but the kind of genre that it is like now, I think the Coen brothers kind of made mm. up their stock and trade for a while. Yeah. Wasn't always big. Mm. And High and Low is one of the earlier really prime examples of a kidnapping being treated as serious tension and drama, not just because... We kidnapped the reporter and she's tied to a chair and someone's mm. going to come rescue her. But in terms of laying out the specifics of how the crime is laid out. There's mm. there's at least one other movie, I think it was from before this. Uh, it was uh, the movie that Ransom was based on. Oh, um... The thing was also called Ransom. Okay, yeah. yeah I uh, it started Leslie Nielsen and mm. um, a couple other people as well. That was pretty good. Uh, High and Low, on the other hand, is like watching Michael Mann make a movie 20 years too early. <laughs> it's so... It's a terse. It's terse mm. when it is not a moral like quandary film, when it is not in that vein. Mm. When it is a police procedural, this is as hard-boiled, tightly constructed, well thought out as Manhunter, mm. Thief, Heat, anything well, have you that seen we... A, have you seen Stray Dog? I haven't seen that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I understand that one's back there. Yeah, uh, that's another 
overheated, hard-boiled sort of detective story. Yeah, that's, from that's Kurosawa. A, from Kurosawa, yeah. That, which he made like a decade previous, where um, Toshiro Mifune was a young cop who lost his gun. Mm. And it was about how he had to travel the city, like going deeper and deeper into the underworld just to find his missing gun. That's inspired quite a few movies. I do mm. know that. It inspired uh, that Running Scared movie with Paul Walker. I think mm. it inspired that part with... Uh, uh, John C. Riley, Magnolia, character in Magnolia, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a big deal. A, another excellent one. It's it's not you know a a Kurosawa in that mm-hmm. it's not sort of him firing on all his complex philosophical cylinders, but it's right. still a really good movie. So, and so so it just proved that he was capable of doing something a little more hard. So here we're seeing sort of an early example of many of the tropes that we've come to know from a lot of kidnapping storylines. Uh, the kidnapper calling in repeatedly trying to keep him on the phone long enough to get a trace, which was actually a thing mm-hmm. until we started using computers. <laughs> and nowadays, tracing a call is, uh, oh, do we trace that call? Yeah, he called for a fraction of a second. Of course we trace that call. He's over mm, like, we just yeah. know. <laughs> That's just mm. how it works. But um, if you watch, if you ever see the original uh, movie Black Christmas, they really do a good job of visualizing this, where they're trying to figure out where this uh, stalker's phone call is coming from, and they have to keep them on the line because a person has to physically find, like the the juncture mm. in like the phone company where the call is coming through, <laughs> and that takes time because it's a physical space that needs to be run through. That's really really cool, and I, I'm almost surprised that Kurosawa didn't show that because it's that kind of nuts and bolts that we're getting in this mm. movie. So the killer's calling in. They're, like, listening into recordings of the phone calls, trying to hear, like, little things. Oh, that sounds like it might be in a payphone. Oh, that sounds like it might be an elevated train. Let me hear the sound of an elevated train. They totally took this from In the Fugitive. Um, I love it when you watch an older movie that you've never seen. And all of a sudden, you realize how it influences a whole bunch of other movies you yeah, liked. Yeah. High and Low is totally one of those. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, we got the whole thing about how, oh, the handoff is going to be such a super dramatic. And mm. boy, it's really distinctive and unique, even now. Um, and then it's full of just after the, the handoff, the kid's fine. Mm. Uh, after the handoff, the whole police procedural just takes over the whole movie. Yeah. And... It's also fascinating because you're dealing with mm. a historically it's just interesting because you're dealing with so many things that would just be easier now. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, just seeing people just follow leads, do the legwork, sitting in the cars, waiting for things to happen. These are things that a lot of people used to believe were boring. Like this is the stuff you cut out of the store. Mm. I remember reading uh, one of the early reviews of Thomas Harris's novel Red Dragon, which was one of these books and the adaptation Manhunter uh, would help popularize the procedural genre in a way that it had never been popularized before. It existed prior to High and Low, too. I mean, you can look at everything from Mystery Street to the Douglas Sirk movie Lured, but it really blew up in the 80s, and that's what led directly to stuff, you know, like you can point it, paint a clear line from Manhunter to CSI. Right. Uh, so just seeing it even earlier is just really, really exciting. And just seeing just how difficult it is and how much just legwork goes into solving a crime. This isn't like, I'm going to follow my hunch. I bet the maid did it. And then you beat up a guy. And then someone else beats you up and you find out it wasn't the maid. And so you beat up a guy. Like, that's the Raymond Chandler way of doing things. Mm. And that's also great storytelling. Yeah. 
High and Low is so much about the technicals of solving a bizarre crime. I love it. <laughs> it's really cool. And tell them about the, the, the cloud. Okay, the, the, so the, the movie's the, in black and white. The pink cloud, yeah. The movie's in black and white. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the 60s. That was still relatively common, but it was starting to go out of fashion. Hmm. And In fact, um, two films later, Kurosawa would shoot his first film in color. There you go. Yeah. Uh, high and low shot in black and white. It's very stark, very film noir. Uh, but there's a plot point where they're trying to figure out everything they can possibly do in case, you know, this doesn't go their way. To try to find clues mm-hmm. for how they can catch this guy, even after the fact. And so when they put together, they, they talk about it really cleverly. So like he insisted that they get briefcases for the money that were only like re- that were really thin, mm-hmm. with very specific amount. I forget what the actual uh, uh, width was, but it's very tiny. And so they talk about okay, so here's what we did: uh, we bought two briefcases that were very distinct, so that like look very unusual, so that he'll have to get rid of them, or they'll give them away. They'll yeah. give them away, so he'll have to get rid of these. So. We figure there's a decent chance to throw them in the trash, in which case, well, there's nothing we can do. Mm. If he tries to burn them, however, we've put this powder in it so that they'll burn bright pink. Mm. And the smoke the will be bright pink. And so maybe someone will see bright pink coming out of a chimney somewhere. And that'll that's a notable and, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's a shot in the dark, but if it works, it works. So we have to try it. And I love that they're going through all of these what-ifs. All of these, but there's another thing that they do where, like, if he tries to do something else with it, like, if you try to, like, put it in water, it'll give off a terrible foul, foul smell. Yeah, yeah, Or something like that. They're just, like, they have to think out every single angle. And uh, later on, when the kidnapper uh, starts realizing that the heat might be on to him, he does try to ditch them. And so while they're having this big, long conversation, <laughs> some kid yells in the window that there's pink smoke in the sky. And they look out, and yeah, there's, like, an industrial chimney with bright pink smoke coming out of this black and white movie. So now they know where this bad guy works. Yeah. They, that's they a very wrote it down. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, that's a very distinct that's not they're not the first movie to play with that, but they turn it into such a distinct plot point. Mm-hmm. And it really pops. And I was very disappointed to learn when I was doing my research on this film that there are actually like versions of this movie that like corrected that in air quotes oh, and they, just they, made it black and white. Uh what no. No. no Don't do that. No no, no. The Criterion Channel is pink. Yeah, no, the Criterion Channel looks just fine. Um, So that's a really, really cool plot point. It turns out the the, uh, kidnapper had accomplices, uh, and the accomplices were heroin addicts, and that's how he was able to uh, get their cooperation, because uh, he actually was a doctor, and he, like, but yeah, when them and th- there's a yeah subplot where they begin to strong arm the kidnapper yeah. and he ends up like cutting their drugs bad and yeah and and murdering them yeah and that takes us into this last act like this big segue because hmm. at first we were dealing with the world of big business hmm. and then we were dealing with the world of like blue collar police hmm. and now here we are as low as Kurosawa thinks society can get. Mm. And the dens of iniquity in which this movie goes to, it's actually one of the few things that turned me off of it because I thought it was too broad. Okay. Because basically, I get it. Heaven and hell, high Mm. and low. But his his portrayal Mm. of, like, this type of crime was so borderline surreal Mm. So fraught, so emotional and expressionistic that it didn't fit. 
hmm. for me. I thought he he portrayed working class people and rich people and the police with an almost objective air of dignity. Mm. And then once you do drugs, fuck you, you're monsters now. And you're going to shoot you yeah. like we would shoot the monsters mm. in the Island of Lost Souls. And I get it, mm. but I actually find it to be a bit of a miscalculation for me because I actually think it would have been stronger if we'd kept it pulled back. What do you well, think? Well, I think if we had spent a little more time with the kidnapper and mm. gotten to know this person's life and why they would kidnap. And... I think, and this is, this is a very Japanese notion, and it's this is not necessarily an anti-capitalist movie. And I think that's what a lot of people, uh, yourself included, might find a little bit frustrating with it. That the rich guy, I said he was sort of an empty vessel, and I think mm. his wealth is what made him an empty vessel. But he wasn't an evil dude because he was able to somehow, in the middle of his panic, do the right thing. Right. Meanwhile, here was somebody who was already sort of on the path of bad things, and it sort of had led to his financial ruin. So the poor depicted as very yeah, kind of evil and you know insidious. I, I don't think it's the poor. I think it's just drug addicts. Like I think mm. it's it's this kind of fear mongering or um, scare film scare tactic film kind yeah, of thing yeah. that it just it comes across as way more judgmental than anything else mm. in the film. I like mm. that. Uh, Kurosawa doesn't go out of his way to turn uh, Toshiro Mifune's character into a villain or a hero. Yeah, yeah, I like that there are a lot of shading in it. I think that's actually incredibly strong filmmaking. I don't mind that this film doesn't have a strong moral stance on capitalism. In fact, I think it is sort of ambiguously moral on the mm. subject of money, because I think he argues that money really shouldn't affect your morals. Yeah. yeah. Which is why, in the end, but when Dasher Mifun's character lo- loses everything, he's still okay. Mm. Like, he's he'll live. He'll make do. Like, he'll be all right. He has options. Like, th- that would be the yeah. issue. But, like, no. It's like the only people who the camera seems to judge mm. are people who are... On the counter, Sergio, get <laughs> well, off the counter. There, there's a scene uh, right Dude. at the the scene right at the end. Dude, where is a final conference? We're we're walking Dude. you through. I'm, I apologize, listeners. We're walking you through this this whole thing. So if if you haven't we assumed seen, you watched it, it's a club. It's it, it is a club. We assumed you watched it, but by the time we get to the very very end, final scene in the movie where uh, Toshiro Mifune and the kidnapper are facing off against one another, and. And not in a fight. No, no, no. no, Fighting off makes it sound like they're dueling to the death on a volcano. Just they're 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 having a conversation finally, and it is Mafune says nothing, almost nothing, and and the kidnapper raves about how he was sort of looking up at the hill and seeing this rich guy and you know growing in his resentment. Yeah, this guy wasn't wronged by him at a company. This guy. Mm wasn't like you know he didn't like run over the guy's like mother in his car or nothing he just saw this rich guy every day and resented him yeah that was his motivation and and so i think the one moral judgment is letting that sort of resentment grow Mm. rather than concerning yourself with being a decent human being is the thing that's going to lead to your ruin and taking advantage of others Uh, and that's a fair moral stance to take Mm. um in Kurosawa's eye, and, and most the eyes of most filmmakers of the 1960s, uh, somebody living in a drug den is not going to be sort of somebody who can be uh, rehabilitated. It's not, not that ask, complex. I'm not asking them uh, to like give us like this like after school uh, special rehabilitation. It just strikes me that the camera's eye ceases to be objective, whereas uh, previously it 
kind of was. Mm. And there's a lot of uh, very, um, uh, what's the word, almost sanitized types of frames where the eye is allowed to wander and mm. like look at any character you want. The camera isn't giving particular emphasis to one person mm. all the time. We're just kind of showing you what's happening. Damn. And then when we get to that drug den, it's like fucking scary, right? I'm like, yeah. It just strikes me as a slight, strikes me as a jarring yeah. shift towards the end. That well, I'm, you said it yourself, high, low, heaven, hell. It's, like, it's I, all, I, it's I, all, I it's get it. Juxt, I just juxtaposed imagery, just juxtaposed considering filmmaking. how assured mm. and how 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 Kurosawa didn't feel the need to tip his hand that strongly mm. in the other direction. You notice that uh, you know heaven and hell. The heaven stuff isn't like amongst the clouds and everything's bright and overblown and everyone looks happy and is wearing white. Mm. He doesn't feel the need to do that. He does it over here. Now, I get it. Again, I get it. This is not a terrible set. It's a brilliant movie. Mm. It rubbed me a little bit the wrong way when I'm watching it. I'm just explaining why. That's not the end of the world. I understand the time period that it's at. I understand that's not the point Kurosawa was trying to make. Um, Just struck me as odd. But um, I love that whole bit where they're tracking the guy, where they're, uh, and we see all of these like different. All of a sudden, the movie becomes less about like people talking in rooms and more about people living. Like there's mm-hmm. a whole bit where they go to this sort of dance party, and everything is just full of commotion. Everything's alive. Everything is thriving. Everything is immediate. I've noticed that. Um Kurosawa is not a party guy. No. And when he shoots crowd scenes, they're always very, uh, very rigid. Like uh, I'm thinking of crowds in films like Kagamusha or Iran. Yeah. Where it's just art, like armies wearing identical outfits all lined up. That's a crowd scene. For yeah. Kurosawa, he doesn't. They're not really. They're not necessarily moving a lot. M- mean, meanwhile, I'm looking at something like Ikiru, which has a few like party scenes at nightclubs, and their scene is like kind of gross places the protagonist doesn't want to be. Yeah. So I think he didn't really like that kind of down and dirty type of um, uh, gross socialization, if you will. No, no, I mean, I was um, yelling social distancing at the camera. Like, I was, <laughs> no, but like, I and I get that. And I don't um, think he's arguing that this is fun, mm. but that's a contrast. And that's, again, the camera is pulled back. We're seeing all of this chaos. Mm. We're seeing people enjoying themselves. We're seeing people not enjoy themselves. And it's a big, sweaty, ugly mess. Mm. But it is filmed... As though, and that's what it is. Yeah. And I don't forget a sense of judgment because people are dancing. But I do get a vague sense that to Kurosawa, this is chaos. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that does come mm. through in the film. Um, High and Low is fucking great. I highly recommend everyone uh, see High and Low. I lowly recommend everyone see High and Low. <laughs> I, I, I'm you were really saving really... that one, weren't you? No, it just came to All me right. just now. But... Uh, no, this is a movie that's really fascinating uh, in that it's excellently crafted from top to bottom. Mm. Uh, but it also clearly has had a profound influence. I didn't know this, uh, but apparently Quentin Tarantino has said that that uh, party scene, that dance scene that I was just talking about, mm. was one of his key influences for the dance scene in Pulp Fiction. Okay. Sure. I didn't know. Nobody told me mm. nothing. Can't, can't comment on that. And, no, but fair no. enough. Uh, neat. So anyway, it's just one of those movies that unlocks other movies. And I think those are really important movies uh, to watch, whether you're genuinely interested in revisiting classic cinema or not. 
Yeah, this is the kind of movie I think you can watch regardless and get it, something. It's out. one of those things that unlocks other movies with, but not without being a great film unto itself. Agreed. It's still exciting to watch. We we mentioned its length. It's over two and a half hours. It's a, it never lets you go. It's pretty crisp. I mean, that, that opening scene's like, okay, we're listening to like 15, 20 minutes of these guys talking about shoes. When are we going to get to the good stuff? There was a, and uh, yeah, when, when the phone rings, doesn't let you go for the rest of its running time. Yeah, there's a, there was a movie theater here in Los Angeles that no longer exists. It was called the Silent Movie Theater. Mm. And, it, and it closed in scandal. It was all fucked up. Like, yeah, it was real terrible how they were running things. But they put on a few good shows in there. And one of the oh, things it, that it they had, did... It had excellent programming. It yeah. just was also run by monsters. Uh, yeah, but, like, I saw some really good films there and some films I might never have otherwise seen. And they had this one program that they did mm. called The Five Minutes Game. Oh, yes. The Five Minutes Game is based on the philosophy that every movie, mm. and no matter what it is, every movie is interesting for five minutes. <laughs> For the first five minutes, mm. as you're figuring out what's happening, and you're deciding whether or not you like what's happening, and the movie is sort of revealing its stories and characters and themes to you, every movie is interesting for the first five. At least five minutes. Yeah, and then maybe it falls off precipitously, but there you go. And so they would do this event where they would show the first five minutes of random movies that, for the mm. most part, most people in the audience hadn't seen or Never heard of, yeah. Like, I think there was like two and all the years that I went that I was like, oh, I know that one. Hmm. But like, that was it. So we got the f- first five minutes and then we they just stop it at five. Doesn't matter if it's a scene transition, middle of a line of dialogue, doesn't fucking matter. You stop it at five. And then at the end of the night, and they'd show like 15, mm-hmm. uh, they we everyone would vote. There'd be like an intermission. There'd be food out in the back. And then whatever movie got the most votes, they'd watch in its entirety. Right. Good program. But for me, the thing I always liked the most about it was this idea that every movie is interesting for five minutes. Mm. It's kind of true. So even though this is a kidnapping thriller, and you know what going in, you've probably seen the poster, read a review, read the back of the DVD, something. Mm. You know it's a you know it's a thriller. For five minutes, ten minutes, they're just talking about shoes. <laughs> and you're just like, well, this is not where I expected this to start. <laughs> and I am fascinated to see how we're going to get to all of these alleged thrills from a bunch of 40-year-old men in suits and ties talking about women's shoes. And I'm not convinced any one of them has ever worn a women's shoe in their life. <laughs> so I kind of love that. I think mm. it's something you can get. That's well, a real, live... that's real estate you have that you can play with. Yeah, you couldn't do I'll... that in the middle. You could do it at the beginning. Well, here's the thing. I think Kurosawa could get away with something like that. I think he was very open to uh, different kinds of structures. You look at, you know, something something like The Seven Samurai, where he just lets the story take its time. And then it's, you know, a three hour and 15 minute film. Yeah. Uh, his best film. And I'm still convinced that this might be the best movie ever made. Ikudu. Mm. Uh, the, the protagonist is only in it for half of it. He's not in the back half. Uh that's an odd way to tell a story. Right. Uh, and I think high and low, you know, this is in the sixties. This is when he's, I think fully matured as a filmmaker. Uh, this is when he was, um, essentially right before he was about to pass into what is considered his late period. Mm. Uh, cause he, after this, he made red beard immediately after that, he made uh Dodes- and Dodeskaden was such a flop that it sent him spiraling into this depression. Yeah, circle. he had some, yeah, he had some uh, difficult... Uh, the 70s yeah. were rough on Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and he came back with uh, the Russian film. Dersu Uzala. Dersu Uzala. Really uh, good movie. Yeah. I love and, that movie. 
and uh, that was sort of the thing that that revitalized him. But of course, at that point, he's been through so much and he's aging that he starts putting out films a lot less frequently. Yeah, he was really prolific was, when he yeah. got started. Yeah. He still made Kagamusha. Mm-hmm. He still made Ron. He still made Dreams. Yeah. So he's still making some great films during this period. Yeah. But but yeah, um, I think this is right when he was just most assured as a filmmaker. And I think he was able to get away with this really unusual structure in terms of screenplay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the first act is essentially just these guys arguing about shoes. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, really. Not it, really. It, all it establishes is the way this guy thinks about his own integrity and how it's the the integrity of how you run a shoe company is completely fucking meaningless in the real world. Well, yeah, how you run um, a business is not how you run a yeah, life. Exactly, is basically the point. And then we have and and yeah, could have the whole movie could have been in that one room on the phone. You know, could have I been actually really thought it was talk, going to be it's a little thriller. We don't leave that um, living room for like the first third of the film. Mm-hmm. I thought the whole thing was going to be there, and I was fine with that. And all of these moral things are coming out right to the surface, and the movie could have been about that, but then yeah. he kind of leaves that behind and he lets the message sink in. He lets us live with the idea of that character for mm-hmm. a little bit while the mechanics are taking care of themselves. Exactly. And I think in living with that idea with the character, in stretching it out, in structuring it this way, we're actually starting to understand the greater moral implication of this yeah. rather than just some sort of cheap one-act sort of college-level play. Well, it's not cheap, but I see Oh, not cheap, but yeah. you, you understand what I, I mean. I understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, high and low. Mm. Classic for a reason. Mm. I hope everyone who saw it for the first time or revisited this week in preparation for this episode, enjoyed it as well. Mm. I know I sure did. I feel enriched for the experience. Hooray for the critically acclaimed streaming club. I'm glad, now, you, I'm glad you saw Kurosawa, because yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of his, and any excuse to watch another is, is one I will take. Uh, next week on the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, we're taking a big about face, because we're going into pure scuzz territory. <laughs> we're going into Shudder. Shudder is a streaming service They're for pure scuzz. They're only about 80% scuzz. No, no, no. <laughs> but if it's scuzz, you'll probably find it there. Mm. Uh, Shudder is a horror streaming service with horror movies of dating back at least as far as the 50s mm. and then onward. Um, and... They're a, they're kind of like a must-own subscription if you love horror. They have tons of stuff. They add new stuff every month. But a lot they have of original real, stuff. Really good original programming. We've reviewed and... some of their stuff here before. I think we did one last week. Uh, and uh, so we decided, okay, well, we're trying to sort of do a sightseeing tour of the major streaming services. We're trying not to repeat a streaming service before we have to. Uh, so next up was Shudder. And we gave you a bunch of different options. And the one that our patrons picked was William Lustig's Maniac, which is fucked up. And I'm going to give you a warning right now. Maniac is not a quote-unquote fun serial killer movie. All right? Maniac is, I think it's very well made. Mm -hmm. It is harrowing and it is gross, but it is clearly in the realm of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer more than it is in the realm of something like Dario Argento's Deep Red or Friday the 13th. It, it's it's dirty rather than elegant. Yeah, have you watched it yet? Because no, this is not one yet. you haven't seen and I have. Well, the, the last I checked, it was neck and neck between Maniac and Ganja and Hess. Yeah, Maniac did win. Neither of which I've seen. So, I haven't yeah. seen Ganja and Hess, but uh, I have seen Maniac. Hmm. I'm, I'm a fan of Maniac as much as anyone can be. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is told from a killer's perspective and it has absolutely no interest in making a killer's perspective fun or Hollywood 
or anything. Mm. Like, even Peeping Tom appears pretty classy <laughs> compared to Maniac. Yeah. Maniac was later remade as a very good uh, uh, film with Elijah Wood, uh, mm. which is told entirely from the killer's perspective. Literally, it's, like, told from POV. Mm. Um, I'm not... I really like that remake a lot. I'm not sure it gets more out of the story than the original. Mm. The original is fucked up. It's from 1980. It's intensely violent. It's very unpleasant in places. It is, however, I think really, really great. So I just want to give everyone a preface on that, that this is one of those movies that some people just might not find fun. Okay. So you've <laughs> not, been warned. Not for the week, Will. Yeah, you might not want to follow us along for this one if you're not into horror or if you're not into violent cinema or if you're not into that kind of deep level of scuzz. I do think mm-hmm. it's fair to warn you because I don't want to just send everyone of our listeners off to this one unprepared. Mm. Um, however, if you even if you do, and they have like a free month of Shutter right now, with like I think it's the password is shut in mm. as your coupon code. Uh, you get a free month, and they have a ton of stuff there, and it's worth yeah, checking out. Yeah. Anyway, so that's next week. Also next week, we have a bunch of new streaming releases, uh, including Tiger Tail, the main event, and Love Wedding Repeat, and, and some others as well. Uh, yeah, we'll find it's, more. It's they're the. The release schedules uh, with streaming have always been a little bit elusive, so yeah. uh, we as film critics have to be a little more fleet-footed to find some of these releases. Yeah, some it of was them a lot get... easier with theatrical releases because those are well-advertised. They have opening dates. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, the streaming service has always been a little bit coy. Yeah, sometimes they'll just drop something you never heard of yeah, on so... there, they never talked about. Sometimes something gets delayed or gets dropped on a Wednesday and you don't yeah, know why. The, the, the companies are being really slippery and we're trying our best to sort of stay on top of all of it and we will review more films we had a bunch this week and we'll have a bunch next week right so uh anyway that's for next week thank you everybody for listening uh if you can contribute to us we sure would appreciate it and god we love every single one of our patrons patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network you get a ton of exclusive content just for folks who subscribe a bunch of different podcasts we do our best to keep you entertained all the time um, so that's available over there. The variety of different tiers. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Together we're at Critic Acclaim. If you want to hear us talk about more Kurosawa, be sure to stay tuned for the next episode of Star Wars Episode Zero because we're talking about his samurai classic Hidden Fortress, and that'll debut in a couple of days. Our whole schedule got kind of thrown off a little bit. It'll correct itself. More or less, pretty yeah. more or less by Monday. Like we should, but all the, all of your favorite shows are coming back. All, all your favorite shows are coming back, and we're going to continue to provide as best we can for yeah. you. So uh, sorry about that. We we have more time, but ironically, narrower windows in which we can actually <laughs> well, like record. I don't have more time. Well, you know what I mean. Like I, theoretically, I have, yeah, I have a brand new job. I'm a home teacher now, and that takes yeah. a lot of time out of the day. So right. So we're doing the best we can. Hmm. Uh, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Stay safe. Uh, stay kind. And to never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>